0: All right, uh, welcome everybody to January 30th, 2021 edition of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. We're very happy to be joining you again on Facebook live stream. Uh, Today, uh, we're joined by a number of our friends, Serafina Harris, Jeremiah Kim, uh, Brandon Stanford, Samir Butt, Miss Jamila from Peoria, Michelle Liu, and as always, uh, Dr. Montero. We'll be continuing our discussion of chapter four of Du Bois' Russia and America. Uh, We'll be reading, starting on page 100, where we left off and continuing up to approximately page 125, but as always uh, we're going to place it in light of current political situation as well as uh, relevant history to this moment. Uh, So Dr. Montero would like to say a few words about that.
1: Okay, thanks a lot, um, Jahan, and thank you everybody and good morning to everybody. You know, I just um, wanted to um, politically and ideologically contextualize this great work and kind of uh, answer the question, uh, which is on the minds of, I think, almost everybody in the free school, at least everybody that's reading this text, uh, why such a a magnificent text, uh, such a beautiful piece of literature, remains unpublished, unmentioned, and ignored uh, after 70 years. we in the free school are perhaps the only uh, group in this country, maybe in the world attempting to read, analyze and apply this, uh, these findings uh, in this moment uh, to the movements and the crisis uh, that is the uh, life of uh, US imperialism and the American empire. Uh, hence for us, This is neither a sterile academic exercise. I mean, if that's what we were doing, everybody could just go to sleep right now, nor an attempt, we're not attempting to use it to discredit Du Bois uh, in the way that his biographer, David Levering Lewis did. And uh, I'd like to uh, just quote something from him if you would uh, be kind enough to allow me to. It's not too long, but it begins to suggest um, the virulence and the savagery of the attacks upon Du Bois uh, something that we have not seen targeted to any American thinker, perhaps ever. Let me just read. Uh, from volume two where David Levering Lewis uh, tries to talk about uh, this, uh, this work. Uh, let me just say before I, I read it, uh, when you listen to what Lewis says, you ask yourself, well, what was he reading? Uh, let me just begin, quote, thus because he Du Bois believed that the enemies of his enemies were his friends in Africa and Asia, neither communism's doctrinal rigidities, nor the Soviet Union's 1956 rampages in Eastern Europe, would shaped Du Bois's commitment to world socialism. The axiom he now embraced was, he proclaimed, that just as Africans in the United States, quote, under the corporate rule of monopolized wealth, will be confined to the lowest wage group, unquote, so the peoples of the developing world face subordination in the global scheme of things capitalist. Du Bois concluded that for the sake of underdeveloped peoples everywhere, all tactics that contained American capitalism were fair. As a battle to the death had been joined between the two superpowers, he saw himself being compelled by the logic of his racial and economic priorities to espouse the cause of opponents of Wall Street and the Pentagon, even when such advocacy corrupted other ideals of intellectual honesty and humanism. Uh, and I want to, to read, I, I just want to underline that. Even when such advocacy and by advocacy means Du Bois's advocacy of anti-imperialism and against the US empire even with such advocacy corrupted other ideals of intellectual honesty and humanism. The essay on Stalinism was apostrophe to the dead dictatorship in the National Guardian that would have flattered the memory of Abraham Lincoln. I think you all know Du Bois uh, memorialized Stalin upon his death. And this is the article that Lewis is talking about. Let me continue. It was of a piece with the text, Russia and America, the large manuscript that Harcourt Brace, the publisher, rendered Du Bois's legacy a favor by declining to publish. The venom and plain bad taste of passages in Russia and America dealing with Leon Trotsky were at variance with the studied dignity of the Du Boisian polemical style, and even beggared the exceptional outrageous savaging expended on Marcus Garvey 20 years uh, earlier. And then he uh, concludes, "Quote to Du Bois, the degradation of the communist ideal in Soviet Russia was philosophically irrelevant to the expiation of the sins of American democracy, whose very possibility he now deeply doubted." Uh, and this was supposed to be a favorable biography of Du Bois. And this second volume was published somewhere around uh, 2010. Uh, to properly understand uh, this text and not Lewis's savaging of it, uh, and correctly read it, uh, we must apply its uh, and to apply its uh, scientific conclusions, we must understand and answer the question: Why did Harcourt brace the, brace the publisher refused to publish it, and why has it gone unmentioned except in this attack upon it by David Levering Lewis? Uh, and I think to answer that why question, we must first understand the relationship of this text to the. Uh, ideological foundations of the US state after World War II. What are the organizing principles of the US state? They are white supremacy and anti-communism. Every structure and institution of power and ideas in the United States and up to this day are consequently organized on these two principles. To be brief, these principles in the end, and if you listen closely to the way representatives of the US state, the US government speak, these principles in the end defend, quote, democracy. To be read, actually, US imperialism and the American empire and ultimately Western civilization. Thus, the fight, quote, for democracy, be it in Vietnam, Korea, Afghanistan, Iraq, Cuba, the assassinations and coups throughout Africa, and on and on, all have taken place under the banner of extending and protecting democracy. Hence, the fight for democracy and freedom and now human rights and, quote, civil liberties is finally the fight against communism, which is defined as authoritarianism and totalitarianism. Now, there are two important texts that appear in the late 40s and early 1950s, which lay the groundwork for uh, uh, this anti-communism, but anti-communism that is veiled behind the claim of democracy. The first, which still holds a lot of weight, and you can hear its echo in the language of so many academics and political activists today. The first is Hannah Arendt. The origins of totalitarianism. And the fundamental argument in this book is that the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany were equally threats to American democracy and human freedom. Hannah Arendt is a German, a, for, a German uh, who fled uh, Germany as uh, Hitler and the Nazis came to power. Uh, she would live. Uh, the latter part of her life in the United States and become a major ideologue of the defense of American imperialism. Like David Levering Lewis, who I previously quoted, she was a social democrat and her parents were members of the German social democratic party uh, during the 1920s and Uh, the early part of the 1930s. The German Social Democratic Party was known in those years uh, for its anti-communism and many argue that Hitler's rise and uh, so on could have been stopped if the Social Democrats and communists had united. However, uh, Hannah Arendt's totalitarianism is the grounding of much of the discourse we hear today. That in opposing the Soviet Union, we are in effect carrying out the work of anti-fascism. And you would hear, I don't know how often today, but during the Cold War, there were writers who would say that uh, the, uh, the Soviet Union was a fascist authoritarian state uh this book and this thinking laid the foundation of what we are still contending with the so-called liberal consensus uh, And if you oppose it, you are you are uh, labeled, I would say these days cancelled as not being uh, for democracy, for being, illiberal or against liberalism and against freedom and this applies across the board and here's where identity politics intersects with anti-communism and white supremacy in a very ironic sense and it becomes clear once you know the origins of the discourse uh, from the beginning and you see how it morphs and intersects with other quote, social movements that advance freedom and democracy uh, while at the same time, not challenging the US empire and American imperialism. Uh, This liberal consensus apologized for and supported every American war, genocidal wars in Korea, in Vietnam, the, uh, the wars of regime change in the Middle East, the coups and uh, 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 assassinations throughout Africa, depriving Africa of some, some of its best sons and daughters and freedom fighters. This is also the foundation of US dollar hegemony. The other text that is foundational to this narrative is George Orwell's dystopic, uh, dystopic is the opposite of utopic, utopia, novel 1984, which is a viciously anti-communist allegory. And um, like Hannah Arendt and David Levering Lewis, he too was a social democrat. And when we use the word social democrat, uh, in this uh, Cold War sense, we're really talking about liberalism or the left wing of the liberals. And because they are so-called socialists, it is, they can assume the mantle that we're not like those uh, right wing Pentagon uh, and financiers. We are not connected to power. In fact, we are progressives. Uh, Sounds familiar? It's the same thing right now. The progressive wing of the party of war and wealth. How can there be a progressive wing of a party dominated by the military and this awesome obscene wealth on Wall Street and uh, Silicon Valley? Thus, the doors open to social democrats as a part of the spearhead of anti-communism, and thus, when the counter-revolution within the Soviet Union occurs in the early 1990s, and when the Soviet Union collapses and the world communist movement uh, 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 is overturned, or un, uh, uh, is overturned, you had. Uh, and I have to say, to my great consternation, uh, social Democrats and so-called progressives like Manning Marable, uh, the professor, the late professor at Columbia University and one of the biographers of Malcolm X, Cornell West, and some members of the Communist Party itself celebrate it, and they use the argument that it is good that the Soviet Union has collapsed. This is a Trotskyist argument, of course, because we no longer have to have the, um, uh, on our shoulders this claim that the Soviet Union is the socialism that we support. I don't know that I made sense there. In other words, we social democrats are now freed from the uh, smear upon socialism that is the Soviet Union. You can hear this same thing today, Bernie Sanders, I support socialism, but only the kind of socialism in white northern European countries. I don't support the socialism of Africa, Asia, or of Cuba. And in fact, he, he said, and I can't get over this, that Hugo Chavez, the leader of Venezuela, was a dead communist dictator. Uh, the Trotskyists, as Du Bois points out, and Du Bois is very accurate about this, had and have for uh, almost 100 years been waging a struggle against existing socialism under the claim that they were indeed socialists, but they were anti-Stalinist socialists. That's the same argument that the social dems make. We're socialists, but we're bourgeois. We're uh, libertarian. We're uh, free, I don't know that they say free market. We're Franklin Roosevelt New Deal socialist, not dictatorship of the proletariat, socialist. Uh, This uh, claim of course uh, is and turns out to be in fact uh, a capitulation to white supremacy recalling now the unbreakable link between anti-communism and white supremacy as two of the pillars of the modern U.S. state, and as a claim unstated in an open way, but nonetheless it is there that the U.S. state is the last defense of Western or white civilization. And thus Bernie Sanders likes Norwegian socialism, but not Venezuelan or Cuban socialism. So socialism with a white face or socialism with a bourgeois white characteristics. But then there's black nationalism. And I know this from my own experience, some very bitter experiences. Cultural nationalism in order to make a compromise with the forces of US imperialism Will say, for example, that none of the problems of war, of peace, of capitalist exploitation, of working people are concerns of theirs because they are African, and their concern is with the uh, re, with the uniting under Pan Africanism, albeit neo or counter revolutionary pan-Africanism or neo-colonial pan-Africanism, they will say that communism is alien to Africans, even though a wide swath of the greatest leaders of Africa, uh, Amilcar Gibral, uh Seika Toure, uh, uh, Augustino Neto, we could go down the list, uh, Kwame Nkrumah. And it's so interesting how the Afrocentrists and Neo-Garveyites tried to separate Nkrumah from the world revolutionary process uh, or attempt to appropriate Nkrumah and even socialism to the neo-colonial ideological project of cultural nationalism. By cultural nationalism, we're not really talking about culture. We're talking about a political project that is in its essence, anti-communist and pro-American imperialism. Then there is the claims of revolutionary nationalists who claim that they are for socialism. But not the kind in the Soviet Union or for that matter, Vietnam or Korea or Cuba. They are for an African socialism. And it is very interesting. While the cultural nationalists spare no effort in attacking communism and communists, and therefore the doors of universities and other institutions of the state are open wide to them, they don't. They don't get harassed, they don't go to prison, they don't lose jobs. In fact, um, they can wear dashikis, they can pour libation and generally talk as much trash as they want because the ruling class understands the positionality of cultural nationalism. And their focus in the black movement has always been, and I want to underline, has always been to attack the left forces in the black liberation movement. And that explains the murders of Bunchy Carter and John Huggins. Uh, That explains their failure to in any way make a serious protest against the murder of uh, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. You know, so, but uh, revolutionary nationalism uh, has never challenged anti-communism. Well, one of the problems is that they associate anti communism, which they can openly embrace, with, well, we're against the Communist Party. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, to put it that way, is an indication that you don't understand the ideological function of anti communism, its relationship to white supremacy, and to the organizing. Ideology, ideology, and principles of the U.S. state. It is bigger than the Communist Party. It is bigger than a member of the Comp. It is bigger even than Marxism-Leninism. Anti-communism joined to white supremacy is a foundation of the U.S. state, and thus, ironically and opposite to what Hannah Arendt. And George Orwell and others have said, it is not Soviet socialism or North Korean socialism or Cuban socialism or whatever that is the foundation of authoritarianism. It is the US state and the principles upon which it is organized. In the end, anti anti-communism is a full-throated capitulation to white supremacy and thus cannot be let off the hook. Uh, Now, where do we go from here? I mean, we're gonna continue to read this text uh, and uh, without apology to anybody, Uh, I am familiar with current some current trends that in the black movement, even trends that will call themselves black left, uh, black radical, uh, and so on, who in fact are silent in the face of anti-communism. In fact, anti-communism in its day-to-day pedestrian uh, character and existence, is so embedded in the thought patterns of most Americans that they're anti-communist often without protest or without even knowing they're anti-communist. The anti-Dubois uh, uh, positionality is in the end predicated upon anti-communism and trying to find, for those who are like this, finding a way to fit within the US consensus. I don't know if I'm making the best sense about all of this. In other words, to act like you don't know about anti-communism, to act like Du Bois only became interested really in communism in 1961 when he joined the Communist Party. When we have this text to feel or to even espouse or act like this magnificent text is unimportant in this time. To claim to be a socialist and not probe the depths of anti-communism and its function in the organization of the state is political and moral capitulation. And I don't care how you try to formulate it. What your presentation of yourself, for example, is. Any radical who is comfortable with the day-to-day formulation of it. In other words, they don't know, people don't know any better. Oh, communism, that's totalitarianism. Oh, communism, that's the communist party. Oh, Du Bois, oh, he, when he got old, he made a mistake. He became bitter and and so on and so forth. Any acceptance of that narrative is an acceptance of the counter-revolutionary authoritarian dictatorship of finance capital and of the American military and which they have done. Uh, Let let me just end on this. Uh, It is a very emotional thing for me because a lot of people think the first time I lost an academic job was when uh, the rank counter-revolutionary Malefes and neo-colonialist by the way, Malefes-Sante fired me. No, that, wasn't, that was the second academic job I lost. Uh, the first one I lost is when you know, I decided I would run for uh, political office as a member of the Communist Party on the Communist ticket. And I was told uh, that uh, this would endanger the work of this uh, uh, university, this part of a university. Uh, in fact, although we were teaching using books from the Soviet Union, uh, I mean, it was quite uh, uh, ironic. So that was the first time. And, you know, kind of, I guess I'll just say this, you know, I don't expect to be treated well. Uh, One, because I never... um, I could never live and that's not to say others who had other you know kind of obligations I could never live in the shadows or underground if I believe in something even today I say it and I think that if I believe in something it could be it could help other people you know if there can be a discourse but you know, uh, like people know that I was a member of the Communist Party and all this, that, and the other. And even though I don't see it as a big thing, it follows me wherever I go. And you can hear the, um, uh, the, the words people saying, or you can see how you're treated uh, uh, by people. Let me, let me just end on this. If I look, for example, Manning Marable, who's a friend of mine, he passed away. Uh, At the end of his life, I completely disagreed with his social democracy. I was aghast at his celebration of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the World Communist Movement. And I asked, how could you say that? I mean, don't you know the relationship of forces on a world scale and what this will do to it? It means war collapse of the Soviet Union and it did. Um, Cornell West, um, for example, in a book uh, that he and Henry Louis Gates wrote and he writes an essay on uh, Du Bois and he puts Du Bois down for joining the Communist Party. Uh, he will later change that position but he will not move beyond the anti-communism of social democracy. And that to me explains a lot of the problems of Cornel West. For instance, the hyperbole of, um, of Trump is a neo fascist thug. Well, that's straight out of the playbook of George Orwell and Hannah Arendt. You know, uh, frankly, uh, when, in fact, you have this large state structure, which is filled with fascists and, in fact, organized upon principles that are not that far removed from fascism. Or uh, the uh, the new flavor of the day, uh, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party uh, fused with anti-communism. Or the quote black lives matter movement of the, of the of last summer, which was not about black life or black lives, but had a political agenda. Uh, that was more like a color revolution. I'll say it again. It looked more like something that went down in Hong Kong and um, uh, uh, Ukraine, than it did like the civil rights movement and how it so conveniently ends Right before the election, I mean, I, I I was I was alive during the civil rights movement. You didn't turn it on and off. Oh, let's end it right now. We got an election coming up, or we're too close to an election. You know, uh, it was fake. But the the foundation is that there can be change. I put quotes, social change, uh, change in the way we see identities, even expanding uh, discourses like discourse on white supremacy, as long as it does not challenge the state power of the richest, most predatory, most authoritarian, most thought control elements that have ever commandeered a state perhaps in the history of mankind. You can talk about all you wanna talk about. You can be everything you can be, but only within a framework that we control. By we, I mean the rich, the powerful, the one-tenth or 100th of 1% and the institutions that protect them. So I, I just wanted to say this because I know most, most people of a certain generation, have never experienced the most blatant open forms of anti-communism. But I know in your lives, it's all around, but it's hard to put your finger on it if you never experienced in its more raw forms. Uh, I'll I'll end there, thank
2: you.
0: Uh, those uh, it's very important uh everything you said and uh, building on some of the discussions we had last week about the impact of anti-communism and the obscuring of the russian revolution um, but before we move on uh, there's a question from uh, vincent kelly uh, connected to when you were discussing the two important books of anti-communism in the 1940s and 50s But Vincent asks, uh, where does Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s 1949 book, The Vital Center, The Politics of Freedom, fit into this?
1: Well, it's it's very, you know, Arthur Schlesinger is very important. A liberal and socialist coming out of the 1930s. And of course, the concept of the vital center is a political concept having to do with how does the ruling class govern? And... You can have two parties and there can be differences. You can have the, uh, the Buckley's and the Arthur Schlesinger's who can debate day and night. But when it comes to the maintenance and uh, preservation of the US state, they come together. The vital center is the center from which we govern and from which we uphold the supremacy of the West. We have to remember Europe was destroyed in World Wars I and II and the Great Depression. The United States was not touched by war. It comes out of World War II with uh, unbelievable power and 75% of the gold reserves in the world, a military uh, with nuclear weapons. So that power, that threat to humanity had to be hidden behind, but we're liberals and we're only doing this. We're only carrying out genocide in Korea and in Vietnam to bring them democracy well you just killed half of the people in the interest of democracy 600 attempts to assassinate Fidel Castro to free the Cuban people you see what I'm saying so the vital center and this is where current so-called progressives and social Democrats, some of whom I've mentioned, fall within acceptable discourse, the vital center, the center that upholds, and this, this word democracy, it is a rat hole. If you don't get that straight, and if you don't have a class understanding of democracy, or an ideological understanding of what this whole discourse is about. You get everything wrong. And you come off like the clown car in the circus train. And the ruling class laughs Like, hey, let them go ahead and talk. They don't challenge anything. And that's what makes Du Bois so courageous, so great, so uh, indispensable. In 1950, he stepped, to the most vicious powerful ruling class in the world and that's what this text is it is it's magnificent
0: okay so uh, shall we begin the yes. the reading michelle
3: yeah i can read um before I started reading, I, I also just wanted to add, I think it's so, um, I mean, you laid it out so beautifully, Doc, but it also made me think about how timely it is that we're reading Russia and America now when we're in this post-election lull where, you know, you you feel the stagnancy and the pressure of that new liberal consensus today. And something we've talked about is this new period of McCarthyism um, and yeah, at the same time, Asia is rising, which I think Absolutely. is, giving, yeah, I mean, it's giving people a new courage, again, to um, imagine a world beyond Western values, um, you know, a possibility beyond just endless wars perpetrated by the West. And um, I, I mean, like you said, I think Russia and America is really the right, um, it's really the right book to be reading right now. And mm-hmm. Yeah, and something else that I thought of uh, from what you had said is how um, now is the time to answer the question of what legacy we're going to return to or what we will restore, and how necessarily we will have to um, we will have to link the way forward to um, the questions of poverty and war, and mm-hmm. yeah, just once again how completely lacking this is in the liberal consensus right now, where. Um, You can say that Black Lives Matter uh, Mm -hmm. without seeing war as a necessary question or primary question. Um, But in fact, that completely severs what the legacy of Black America has been, which has been um, a unification with the rest of um, humanity and the rest of um, the strivings of the world's people. And... Yeah,
1: I just thought the way that you synthesized everything was so beautiful. Um, Can I I just say something, Michelle? Yeah. You know, in in the back of my mind, as I was, you know, kind of getting these notes together, you know, I was thinking about your essay. Where you queer theory is another form of white supremacy. But white supremacy is irreversibly connected to anti communism Mm -hmm. anti communism is an anti revolutionary politics. I don't care how you cut it, you know. So, you know, I'm thinking about the queer movement, trans movement, all of that type of thing. I was thinking about gentrification, especially around the University of Pennsylvania. Yes, it's racist, but it's predicated upon the white elite who are moving around universities and taking over cities and neighborhoods see themselves as a democratic force, as a Black Lives Matter force. You know what I'm saying? All of these ironies, you know what I'm saying, Michelle? Just mm. ironies and contradictions. And everybody just goes along with it. Oh, yes. Yeah, we don't like gentrification, but they are nice, you know? They do sweep the streets, right. that type of thing. And uh, yeah, well what you gonna do type of thing. But that is why the ideological struggle is paramount. And then I was thinking, you know, Jeremiah and I, we were talking on the phone a couple weeks ago and um, and Jeremiah said, you know, hey doc, you know, this uh, Russian America, I think is, you know, one of Du Bois' greatest works. I said, Jeremiah, if you hadn't said it, I was gonna say it. I was thinking the same thing. It is, I mean, how anybody claiming to be revolutionary, and I'll put it another way, claiming to be black and radical, take that text lightly? Uh-uh. No, you're perpetrating a fraud. You're perpetrating a fraud. Anybody that demeans Du Bois that has an ounce. Of understanding of the logic of what he was doing, and then oh, he ain't important. Now we doing our thing. Uh, uh-uh. uh, no, you're a fraud. You're an opportunist, and you you don't. I mean, well, I'll shut up. Let me see. But I mean, it's a magnificent piece of literature, just magnificent.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And I know Jerry Jeremiah feels like I feel it equals black reconstruction. you know It really does as a as a philosophical work.
3: I think us reading Russia and America in some ways feels like um, you know there's a feeling of coming home because you look you look around us right now and society is um, it's just so chaotic, you know, yeah. in the city of Philadelphia. Violence and crime is on the uptick. Um, I mean, these are really, these are very trying times and they're desperate times. And the contradictions and the hypocrisy of um, the ruling class in the society is reaching a fever pitch. And yes. Yes. the liberal consensus is just going along with it, you know, chattering more and more um, abstractly, okay. removing themselves further from the primary questions of. The society, you know, what's what's truly at the root of everything that's happening and coming back to Russia and America, which takes us right to the heart of this question of, um, you know, world peace and um, a new moral standard which can guide a new paradigm for humanity. That's, I mean, it's exactly where we need to go right now. It's, yeah, it's just so much farther beyond um, everything else that the so-called progressivists or the left is talking about right now.
1: Can I just say one thing? I know I'm (laughs) keeping, you know, to me, and I I think you feel the same as I do, Michelle, it's either Du Bois or the
3: abyss.
1: (sighs) It's either Du Bois or liberals. I don't care how you cut it because what is the ideological foundation that you stand upon? What are you going to say, Marcus Garvey? Well, that's a joke. Um, uh, What are you going to say, 1984, George Orwell? Well, you see what I'm saying? Either Du Bois or the liberal consensus, which is the abyss. Either Du Bois or an anti-working class attack upon the working class. You know, a lot of Black people, they're so Black that Du Bois is not Black enough for them. If you know what I'm saying, Black people understand where I'm coming from. If Du Bois ain't Black enough for you, then maybe you're not Black. Maybe you're faking Blackness. You know what I'm saying? Black on the outside, but a neocolonialist on the inside. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the project of the critical Interrogation of all sides at this moment. And there is chaos. There is uh, the control of uh, social media, the big tech, of speech, man, of thought, of dissent. And you have all of this posturing and dissent which fits within the liberal consensus. Upholding the vital center of Schlesinger.
3: Okay, should I start reading? Okay. um, Doc, do you think that I should um, share my screen so that people can see the reading? Don't know. yeah
0: I think yeah let's let's try it today Okay,
3: um, I'll do that then um Jahan you need to enable screen sharing for me first
0: oh okay all right I made you co-host you should be able to do it
3: thanks Okay, can everyone see my screen?
1: Oh yeah, that's good. Yep. <laughs> okay. That's decent, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <Wow. Yes>. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, Okay. maybe it's better if I just go one page at a time.
1: Yeah, Yeah. that's right. It looks, oh, that's beautiful, Michelle. <laughs> okay.
3: <laughs> okay, I'll start reading from page 100. If post-war Germany was to equal Britain and France in industry, with equally high profits, it must have colonies, and not merely the lost colonies which were small, but larger colonial territory. This might be secured by concessions from Britain or France in the face of a new German army and navy, or colonial territory might be taken from conquest of Bolshevik Russia. This was a growing aim with the Hitler regime and with the Reichswehr power which preceded him. It was for this that they bribed Trotsky. When the Trotsky conspiracy failed and the Soviet Union moved successfully into the five-year plans, Germany began furious propaganda against the Soviets. In 1936, Hitler and his followers denounced communism, recounted its crimes and foretold its inevitable failure. And at the same time, imitated nearly every method and adopted theoretically nearly every goal that Russia had followed or announced. The longer I looked at Hitler's Germany, the more I realized that it was a socialistic state. It was copying the Soviet Union in innumerable ways. Its ownership and control of industry, its control of money and banking, its steps toward land ownership and control by government, its ordering of work and wages, its building of roads and homes, its youth movement, its one party slate at elections. In certain respects, it differed from the Soviets. While the state controlled industry, the state itself was controlled by a clique. That clique was financed by industry, but industry did not control it. It controlled industry through the state. There was no suggestion of democratic control of the state rather that was openly repudiated. The system of education was curtailed rather than enlarged and aimed increasingly at service to industry. At first, Europe and America applauded Mussolini and Hitler on their states. Industry saw in them an answer to communism, then doubt obtruded. If these dictators continue to control industry, how would industry emerge and with how much autonomy? Was socialism under a dictator, the answer to communism under mass dictatorship as in the Soviet Union? were either preferable to the anarchy of individual initiative, even when that initiative was being centralized under group control? Indeed, was not fascism simply another form of socialism rather than an answer? Meantime, Hitler's own answer was to attack the Soviet Union and revile and decry its every effort. I saw Hitler in 1936 at the zenith of his power and his one final word what then was, quote, conquer Russia, overthrow communism. I was astonished to find Russia so in the center of European thought. In my own mind, Russia was significant, important. But I thought of its problem as local and national, of tremendous importance to the world if it succeeded, but no threat, rather an experiment, a dream yet to be realized or to die with noble memories. But in Germany in 1936, Russia was a fact. An accomplished experiment, so successful as to pose the immediate question of acceptance by modern culture or violent uprooting by every means. Britain was an enemy, but an enemy to be copied in success and method. France was an ideal which needed only German science. Italy was an ally, but Russia was something threatening (coughs) but under German control. And now from Germany, where I had been made repeatedly aware of the pervading and growing influence of the Union of Soviet Republics, I turned with renewed interest and curiosity toward the East. Around me were ominous occurrences. Indeed, the whole world situation was so confused that I could not grasp all of its ramifications and meaning. Japan was secure in Manchuria, and to my mind then, Japan was the hope of the colored world. The New Deal of distinctly socialist legislation had begun in the United States. In 1934, the European unrest had increased. The King of Yugoslavia and the French cabinet minister, Bartho had been assassinated. Italy was in Albania and Hitler had visited Rome. In December, Stalin's friend Kirov was murdered and in Italy and Africa had begun aggression on Ethiopia. There was sabotage and murder in Russia to halt the Soviet program in 1935. The war in Africa continued, despite the insincere efforts of the League of Nations, when the Soviets sought alliance with France and Czechoslovakia. Britain consented to German rearming, a German-Japanese attack on Russia was planned, and Trotsky and Nore plotted to yield territory and capitalistic concessions in Russia to Germany. In 1936, the year I was in Germany, Ethiopia was conquered, civil war broke out in Spain, and Medaxis made his coup in Greece. Another treason trial took place in Russia, and Hitler furiously denounced Bolshevism at the Nuremberg meeting of the Nazis. I heard its echoes all over Germany with reproductions of charts showing alleged wretched conditions of the Soviet workers. A great colonial exhibition was planned for Breslau, and I saw the exhibits but news of it was suppressed outside of Germany. I wrote to the Soviet Union for permission to visit the country, especially to see and study the interracial situation, and also to pass through the land on my way to China and Japan. Also, I wrote Radek telling him of my plans. This was not wise since Radek at the time was deep in the Trotsky conspiracy and early in 1937 was convicted. At any rate, my request to stop for study in Russia was not granted. but passage through to Manchuria was permitted. I then wrote my friend, Mrs. Williana Burrows, an American colored woman long connected with the Moscow Daily News, but she replied, quote, I made inquiry right away as to what could be done about the visa. I was informed that it would be quite impossible to change this decision. It is not as easy as formerly to get permission to come here. End quote. She added, I really believe, as I told you in my last letter, that with the short time at your disposal and with the people who could help you so occupied, it would be quite useless to try to cover so large a subject as the position of the minority groups in the Soviet Union. On the national policy of Soviet Russia, which has international meaning, such a structure of well-being and new life has grown up, that six months could well be devoted to it. End quote. Afterward, I understood better why the Soviet Union was not welcoming visitors, especially from the United States and en route to Japan. This was for Russia, a time of trouble and her experience in seeking to attract visitors through the interest organization had been disappointing. So I s- started east. <laughs> so I started east with promise of but short glance at Moscow but a long ride on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, 4,000 miles in 10 leisurely days with frequent stops. Moreover, on this trip, I had the advantage of many reports and studies on Russia made during the last decade. The monumental study by Sydney and Beatrice Webb, the British trade union report, the Brails, the Brailsorb pamphlet and numbers of essays and articles. I determined to examine these for background, adding to them conversations and all that I could see. I glimpsed Poland but dimly, passing through on the express from Berlin. Warsaw rose mistily in the early morning, a fleeting glimmer of broad grays and yellows of a considerable city. The whole land beyond lay low and beautifully rolling. Villages crouched dark and old, sometimes poor never knew. The land is rich, black and empty. Great broad stretches, which are the beginning of that vast plain sweeping from the Alps to Manchuria on which so fateful dramas of human history have been played. Here and there, a church points up, lonely on the horizon. I hear Polish music on the earphone, which a coy newsmaid comes and smiling adjusts. It is sad and gray. There are more clustered villages with little homes hugging each other for warmth. There are a few cities after Warsaw, such as Bialystok, Wilkowsk, and Stonin. There are pine forests and a far off shadow of mountains. Here I pass a rich estate with great brick barns and a white two-story villa hidden in trees. Beyond our broad fields, heaving with winter wheat and beehives. I think I see here and there a roadside shrine. Haystacks are black and clothes girded. Roofs are often thatched, cows are black and white. The land is not poor but undeveloped. Domes of the East, white, bulging and curving, are appearing on the churches. There are soldiers with guns, not many, but always a few. At one station were drawn up a dozen or more ancient one-heart strokes. It has been 10 years since I had seen Moscow. The changes in that time have not been striking, but subtle and significant. There is no brave show of square and smart shots. A residential suburb and other insignia of wealth and growth of private fortunes. There are a few changes that indicate less expenditure and display than in 1926. The, the golden domes, so characteristic of old Moscow, are disappearing. The vast cathedral of Christ the Redeemer, which must have cost Tsarist Russia 100 million loaves of bread, is gone, and in its place, only a vast hole and foundations. Foundations, that is the word that characterizes Russia of today. Foundations are not beautiful nor even interesting unless one has far-reaching imagination. It is October 1936, I am in Russia. I am here where the world's greatest experiment in organized life is making, whether it fails or not. Nothing since the discovery of America and the French Revolution is of equal importance, and yet, this experiment is being made in the midst of unexampled hostility amid deep-seated bitterness and recrimination, such um, such as men reserved usually for crime, degeneracy, blasphemy. I listened to the frenzy of hate and loathing when the Nazis at Nuremberg frothed and spit on Russia. I have just read the prayer of that old and dying priest, whom millions call the successor of Jesus Christ, as he brackets war and communism in one curse. Yet can one doubt the sincerity of Russia? Can one question for a moment the gain to civilization if it were proven possible to make human welfare rather than profit the chief end of industry? Even if Russia fails to accomplish this, or accomplishes it only in part, what a stupendous adventure, what a search magnificent, and at a cost so far less than that of any similar revolution in world history, if perchance there ever was such an effort on such a scale. What is the sober truth? This is no utopia, no fairyland of joy and plenty. Moscow looks much like other cities. There are people in crowds, well-clothed and ill. There are various insignia of poverty and crowding. There are poor homes, crowded streetcars, tired workers, but with all that one conventionally expects in a modern city, there are some things astonishing. First of all, one misses the stores. Conceive a great modern city without street upon street of shops. Stores, and again, more stores. Duplicate stores, stores for necessities, for luxuries, for, for frivolities, for, clothing, for food and clothing. There are stores in Moscow, but few widely spaced and run by the state. Think first of the space and rent saved. Think of the saving and advertising alone. On the other hand, the comparative paucity of stores must entail trouble and loss of time. One sees long queues at the shops waiting to be served, yet here is an attempt at system in the most anarchic part of capitalistic enterprise, the distribution of goods to the consumer. The private shops of the NEP have disappeared from opposite the Kremlin. The state directs retail trade, there are compact, well-stocked, gross, well-stocked stores here and there throughout the city to all appearance efficiently manned and run with goods aplenty, plenty, but not all goods. There are a few luxuries, perfume, face powder, and other bits that my friend says were either unpurchasable in 1926 or imported at high prices. These are, quote, made in Russia. Most goods for sale are necessities, made not because they bring the greatest profit to someone who has the power to say what shall be manufactured, but because the mass of the people need them and because the state alone has the power to say what goods shall be made. This is tyranny. This is interference with the liberty of action, which some few folk have had for ages. But this liberty was bought at the price of poverty for most people, which had no such liberty. Differences and considerable differences in income are visible in Russia, more so my friends say today than 1926. There are no idle rich, no leisure class. One sees furs, silks, and good woolen cloth among some folk and rags on others. It is hard, however, to say how far this difference goes and how symptomatic it is. One has a feeling that the back of extreme poverty is broken and that the mass of Russians have enough to eat and clothing enough to keep warm and shelter of a sort. There are new buildings in Moscow, mostly great office buildings for the officials of administration. They take the place with less duplication of the endless office buildings of New York and London. In them, the socialistic state guides and regulates production of goods, manufacture of goods, distribution of goods, application and training of human services. Here, then, is a civil service, which adds to what we are used to regard as the functions of government, all those those matters which we thought must by order of nature be done by unregulated private initiative. In the Union of Socialist Soviet Republics, an effort is making on a tremendous scale to prove that government must and can regulate the economic as well as the political functions of men and substitute public welfare for private profit. Is this possible? Russia is a world. From San Francisco to New York, one gains four hours of time. From Moscow to Vladivostok, one gains six hours. Wide, wild, and wonderful is Russia, monotonous for hundreds of miles with its broad level empty acres, yet varying infinitely in succession of village and town, swamp and forest, noble rivers. At Perm, the northern branch of the Volga flowed black and mighty by the low-lying electric lighted city. Then came the rolling hills of the Urals, and finally the ice and snow of Siberia. We passed forest, swamp, and lake. We went over the Yenisei on a succession of new steel arches. The soil is of every variety. South of us in the Ukraine, the Black loam is a foot deep. But here in mid-Russia, it is a yard deep, with an unplumbed fertility, what will, we, what will the wheat fields of Iowa and Canada do when Russian agriculture really extends itself? One sees little dun-colored crouching villages, usually with homes stretched along one muddy street. It is the same sort of drab village life that exists in the west and south of the United States. Yet there is a difference. There are few stores, no saloons, Always there is a new schoolhouse, often a brick and usually the best building in town next to the center. The center of the Communist Party is a common meeting place, a means of adult education and propaganda, a place where the radio brings news and entertainment. We came to Ir- Irkutsk in the black mist of early morning. I struggled reluctantly up from the drug of dream and saw the sunrise on the lake Baikal. Baikal is a jewel hung in space at that fateful spot where Europe becomes Asia and where the waters part to make Pacific and Atlantic. Behind is Russia and Europe, before is Russia and China. Here meet the past, the present, and what will be. Our steam is our steam in the cold blast falls and lies low like lace across the waters. The sun casts aside her morning mantle of mist and shines white and clear. More and more recklessly we bore into the mountains and the mountains ahead rise in ranks, black in front from iron, silver and snow behind. Slowly, persistently was the rush, hour after hour, mile after mile. The lake reveals some warning of its vast size and grandeur. It is a sea, a rift in a continent born of some ancient rift in heaven. Six long hours we fly along its shores, and yet, when we leave it and plunge toward Manchuria, we have only skirted the small curve of its lower border. It is 400 miles long and 20 miles wide. Consider the enormous task to which Russia had set herself. She proposed to make a nation where the masses rule. Many wise men earnestly and honestly believe the task is impossible, that for all foreseeable time, the mass of men will serve some form of aristocracy, while civilization will always mean the culture of the few. Consider though the grandeur of the vision which makes this possible best consists of all men. First of all, we must face the inevitable difficulties of all beginnings. One found in Russia in 1936, dirt and bad manners, eating and bathing habits were unpleasant. Equality of status, where there is as yet no real equality of culture and habit, has been endlessly inveighed against from the French Revolution to the emancipation of American Negroes. This in 1936 greatly bothered observers of Russia. They were obsessed by the glamour of culture and wealth in a few, despite the degradation of the mass on which this culture was built. Wealthy East Indians, rich Chinese, Russian Grand Dukes, bring to such people only the deepest admiration and envy. They mention them with hushed voices and accept their notice with reverence. What American who rails at the rule of Russian peasants would not have accepted a summons to the Winter Palace with tears of gratitude? In 1923, the Union of Socialist Soviet Republics proclaimed, quote, to all governments and to all the peoples of the earth, that they had started the enormous task of restoring the national economy on the basis of the new economic structure of society after it has passed through unprecedented calamities. Russia of the czars was a colony ruled by the aristocracy of a superior race and inhabited by more than a hundred different nationalities. We are declared Lenin in 1921, a beggarly uncultured people We should speak of that semi-Asiatic cultural backwardness, which we have not yet thrown off. We are a people, to put it mildly, on the level, as it were, of semi-barbarism. The Russian peasants often lived in hovels filthier than pigsties without meat, eggs, butter, or milk. In 1921, industry had sunk to one fifth of its pre-war production and agriculture to one half. Disease and starvation were making a fearful mortality. The land was, quote, medieval in its institutions, Asiatic in its strivings, and prehistoric in its conceptions of life. It was this land far behind Western Europe in cultural or economic standards that the Bolsheviks proposed to transform. They proposed a nation based on the suppression of the landlord and capitalist, and of all forms of private profit-making. In a Declaration of Rights, July, 1918, they abolished private property and land, which was to be national property and given the peasants without rent. Likewise, all forests, mines and water rights and livestock were nationalized. Workers were to control industry as a step toward transferring all means of production and transport to the Soviet Republic. Never before had a government tried entirely to recast its economic and social life including habits, health, occupations, and ideals, and to make a new civilization. Many said the proposal was impossible. Even Russian Bolsheviks like Trotsky insisted that trying to build socialism in a single country with the opposition of a capitalistic world, and particularly in a backward land like Russia with little industry was impracticable. That first a world revolution must prepare the way. But Lenin and his followers insisted on trying their programs in Russia alone. They knew the risk, but they took it, even after world attack. They agreed on their fundamental law in 1918, and then changed and amended this until it emerged as a constitution in 1922 to 1923. In visiting Russia in 1936, my object was to see how the experiment, which I had seen briefly and broadly in 1926, had succeeded in practical effort. Then I had, in a sense, examined a dream. Now in cold survey, I wanted to see the facts of the situation. I had naturally neither time nor permission to make a personal study, even had I been equal to in a land so large and complicated. But from 1926 to 1936, there had been numerous students of Russia whose published conclusions were now available. There had been a succession of Soviet studies and government reports which seemed to me quite as reliable as government reports anywhere requiring to be sure evaluation in the light of national susceptibilities which in the case of the Soviet Union naturally weighed heavily to this I wanted to add whatever personal observation and human contact I could in a brief glimpse of Moscow and a 10-day journey from Moscow to Manchuria The problem of democracy in Russia in 1917 was appalling. Here were over a hundred million people in a land extending from the Arctic to the Black Sea and the Pacific to the Baltic, over two thirds illiterate, belonging to many different races, cultures, and languages and religions. No constitution based on universal suffrage according to the theoretical Western model would have worked. Lenin and his followers evolved the plan of basing nationwide democratic control on a large number of small meetings of neighbors to discuss matters of intimate knowledge and interest. Here would be chosen persons whom they knew to represent them at district meetings and so on up to the all union Congress. Thus the masses would learn the technique of representative government and yet be held together as a state. With education and leadership, such a state would eventually become a democracy. The leadership consisted in control from above administered by the Communist Party. The 70,000 village and shop Soviets were allowed the utmost freedom of discussion. There is practically nothing they were not allowed and even encouraged to discuss and deal with so far as it touched their interests but neither village nor district nor province had any rights which the higher body could not curtail or veto. In other words, the Russian primary unit, or intermediate governmental body, was not given legal rights which belonged exclusively to them and with which states' rights, the higher authority, could not interfere. Thus, the Russian federated government avoided the tyranny of local rule, but laid itself open to imposed authority. Here, however, authority could never act in ignorance because the criticism on local and national matters was literally boundless and continuous. As a writer in the Moscow news wrote, quote, herein lies the essence of our democracy. Our Soviet democracy is not expressed in our official edicts. Our Soviet democracy is expressed in broad activity. When every decision is worked out by the masses, criticized hundreds of times by the collective farmers, by the individual peasants from every possible angle. Herein lies the difference and the intricacy of the work of leaders of village Soviets." Unquote. What does the mass of people think of this democracy? Testimony as to this lies in their voting. The Russians vote more widely and frequently than the people of any land. In 1934, 77 million persons voted or 85% of those eligible. The voting age is 18, and there are no limits of sex, race, or religion, illiteracy, or pauperism, so long as the person is engaged in, quote, socially useful work of hand or brain, unquote. About 2.5% are disfranchised. The voters take part in a million or more meetings during the year, where in town or factory meetings they elect delegates to local governing bodies, who in turn elect to district bodies, and they to, to provincial bodies, and thus up to the All-Union Congress of Soviets, a body of 3,000 delegates. There were in 1936 600,000 villages, electing 2 million delegates to 70,000 local governing bodies. The Soviet citizen votes not only as a political citizen, but as an individual producer, as a social consumer, and, if he belongs to the Communist Party, as a member of the leadership group. For each of these functions, there arises a governmental period similar to that of the political Soviets. The government in Moscow, thus, is the apex of a half-dozen pyramidal social structures, covering the Union, each based on a vast number of small meetings, for almost continuous discussion, and for periodical direct election of primary representative councils. The very multiformity of the Soviet administration gives a vitality a pledges it pledges a common single aim and a rich common experience the single party state of the soviets is not necessarily a denial of democracy when democracy first came to england the constituency naturally was divided between liberals and conservatives we had in most democracies two parties standing for different fundamental policies or, if not, two parties in agreement differing only on methods. Sometimes this led to splinter parties, which represented particular groups and personalities. This goes to the ultimate in the Soviet Union. There is but one party, and its aim at present was settled in 1928. Now the Soviets emphasize mainly means and personalities in elections sifting and arguing in primary assemblies on what persons shall represent them in higher bodies and recalling them at any time. They insist that in main party matters, there is and can be but one party based on science and experience. This argument may be wrong, but it is not a deception. In future and within the framework of communism, there might conceivably arise broad differences of policy which would give rise to parties, but the absence of parties today is not necessarily a denial of democracy any more than the presence of parties ensures democracy. (laughs) How far is this voting and local activity a proof of real power? Or how far is it but the semblance of power while the reality rests above? Certainly the local bodies believe they have wide democratic control and are extraordinarily interested and busy. The village soviet or town meeting rules the town and keeps order there is quote practically nothing that the soviet may not organize regulate or provide at public expense from roads and water supplies through clubhouses and dance floors up to schools theaters and hospitals end quote it also inspects the state manufacturing and trading departments on its borders and the consumers cooperatives it raises taxes and spends them on education and health roads and bridges but the budget must be approved by higher bodies to which they elect delegates. The villages keep practically all the taxes they collect and in addition, usually receive grants or emissions from the higher units of government to pay for and expand their budgets. If anyone doubts this, the planning for democracy in this nation, the system of Soviet education would seem a sufficient answer. If a mass of people are to be misled and used by others for selfish and antisocial interests, they must not be educated save in limited ways. This explains why black slaves in the United States were denied by the law, by law, the right to learn to read and write. It explains the determined limitation of native education in all colonies. But in Soviet Russia from the beginning, the revolution stressed education. From 1914 to 1912, education sank to its lowest depth. Then came an effort to educate a nation unparalleled in modern times. Quote, there is no other fragment of Earth's surface at all comparable in extent in which anything like this conception of an educational service prevails, unquote. It is universal compulsory, it is universal compulsory education free of expense, not only for literacy, but for life, with no restrictions of race, sex, color, or creed. School attendance increased from 14 million in 1929 to 26 million in 1933. Illiteracy was reduced to 10% in 1933. College enrollment increased from 207,000 to 491,000. And most of the students were workers and peasants' children. As a result, reading habits increased and newspaper circulation rose from 12,500,000 in 1929 to 36 million in 1933. No matter how much of a false propaganda, no matter how much of false propaganda and deception may have crept into the Soviet government, it has taken the one sure path eventually to base Russian life on intelligence and right. Everywhere in Russia in 1936, one saw the schoolhouse. the center of this vast interlocking government, the All-Union Congress of Soviets, a body of 2,200 delegates in 1936 with 800 alternates, meets every three or four years. It is too large to transact business, but it expresses opinions and is representative of every part of the land. The effective powers of government lie in the hands of its executive committee and the council which it appoints. The central government makes the budget for the nation. Because the state controls industry, its revenue comes from industries like railroads, mines, oil wells, and from manufacturing and trading establishment. These sources of income amount to several times the total monies received from taxation by localities and the central government. Half of this income goes back to local governments as subventions to local authorities. The expenditures fall into three main parts. One, capital investment, Two, social welfare, including health, insurance, and education, expenses of government, justice, and defense. Three, the remainder is the wages fund for consumer expenditure. From 1927 to 1934, the Soviet Union saved over 20% of its income for new capital as compared to 10% in Great Britain. The Union also saved the expense of advertising, which cost the United States at least half a billion dollars a year. Planning for all of this did away with unemployment, preserved natural resources, and even encouraged voluntary labor by the laborers and not confined to the well-to-do. The peculiarity of the union of Soviet republics as a government lies in the fact that it includes both politics and industry in its control. The criticism leveled at this unusual undertaking is that it supplants the vital impulse of private profit that no state can conduct industry successfully because of the nature of the task. The Soviet answer is first that if the state can conduct industry, then industry will be aimed at the objects for which the state exists. And if those objects are the well being of the mass of inhabitants, the nation will be better off. Secondly, the Soviets say that as a matter of fact, they are successfully conducting industry. On the basis of prices prevailing in 1926 to 1927, Russian production increased from 16 to 34 billion rubles for the period 1928 to 1932. It exceeded the pre-war level more than threefold and the 1928 level more than twofold. Sydney and Beatrice Webb say, quote, viewed in comparison with other nations that suffered from the great war, and measured either by capacity produced or by the aggregate of commodities and services distributed, there seems no doubt that the material progress of the USSR from the exceptionally low level to which it had been reduced in 1921 has not only been enormous, but has even been proportionately greater than that of any other country. In fact, the Soviet Union has quite obviously grown richer in the very years in which most, if not all, other countries have grown poorer. Unquote. But, asks the Western world, if this is true, what has been the social cost? Germany under Hitler raised production, but it was at the cost of eliminating the trade unions as effective instruments of industrial democracy. What, was, what has happened to Soviet unions? The Soviet trade union is both a government agency and the voice of labor and industry. Its primary unit is the factory, mine, or industrial establishment where men work. And all who work in a single establishment producing the same commodity or service belong to that union, no matter in what capacity they labor. The members in each shop or factory elect councils. These, These councils elect delegates to district councils and they to Republic councils up to the all union congress of the 154 trade unions of the Soviet Union. The Russian Union is not, therefore, like the American Union, a group designed to fight an employer or an industry for higher wages or pensions or better conditions. These things they want and fight for. The path to achieving this is through the trade union hierarchy, which means that all industry is taken into account and not a single plant or one branch of industry. But into this account, the interest of the worker is considered by his representatives elected by the voice of each little group of shop employees. They vote in union meetings and elect delegates to district meetings. The district organization elects provincial bodies and so on up to the all Union Congress of Trade Unions, which is an organ of government considered by Lenin as first in importance. No government policy is decided without consulting this body. For all local disputes as to ages, hours, and conditions of work, immediate hearing is given and arbitration instituted. The board, consisting of three representatives one for the management, one the leading union official in the plant, and third, a member of the local communist cell. Such arbitration is usually successful. If it is not, it can be appealed to a higher body with similar representation or to the national commissariat. Commissariat of labor. The 18 million workers in the Soviet Union in 1936 were grouped into 154 unions in tens of thousands of establishments. They elect 186,640 factory and local committees who conduct more collective bargaining than any other labor union system in the world. The object of that bargaining is not confined to local conditions but extends to the problem of increasing national production so that all wages can be increased and better conditions of work for all workers be realized. Wage rates depend on this general level of production, and not simply on the conditions in one factory. They can study facts and figures concerning the level of industry over the nation and consider the part which can be allocated to their industry and yet leave enough for others. The Soviet Trade Union is interested in protection against industrial accidents, healthfulness and pleasantness of working places, plans for the factory conduct, correcting and punishing delinquencies of their members, food and prices in their cooperative, insurance for sickness, accidents and old age, housing, clubhouses for recreation, travel and holidays, tickets for theatres. For these matters, the unions handle 5 billion rubles annually for insurance, pensions, rest homes and hospitals. Naturally, this attitude of mind toward industry has been a slow growth. It took a decade for unions not to conceive of the union as primarily an organ of revolt against capitalist employers. The inauguration of the first planning of industry brought conflicts as to the role of the unions. Should each union be free to press for its own advantages in wages, hours and so forth, or act as, a union to increase produ- act as a unit to increase production for the whole nation and not for their industry alone. The latter attitude eventually prevailed. As a result, there is no effort to, cur- to curtail output. There is general approval of pay based on piece work and there are no craft jurisdictional disputes. Every facility is afforded for upgrading of workers who apply, even to opportunity for study with pay. One notices about the Russian worker not only preoccupation with his job and the local conditions, but also reliance on his future security in accident or old age, the certainty that his children's education will be provided for, and that he will have vacations with pay. My conductor on the Trans-Siberian trip was planning a vacation in that part of the Soviet Union, which corresponds to our Florida, and rejoiced in the fact that his two children were in school and in line to learn a skill or profession which would furnish a livelihood and promotion. The government of the Soviets make what we regard as private business a part of government. Practically all the heavy industry And most of the light industries, together with nearly all transport and all foreign commerce, are conducted by public departments, which are established and directed by the federal government. To an American, this seems utterly unworkable, but a moment's reflection proves that this vast oversight and planning must proceed in every great modern industrial nation. In the United States and Britain, it is done by private business organizations, instead of by the government. Often such industrial trusts are larger than many actual governments in smaller lands and even rival in income and power many divisions of their own governments. Russia in this respect is like the combination of a hundred or more of our great industrial combines. Like the steel trust or general electric or the metropolitan life insurance company with a, with a, uh what's that word into oh into a uh, something organization of sport.
0: super and i think it's into a super organization or state
3: oh thank you the difference lies in the fact that the object of the soviet industries is general welfare while that of the private firms is at least in theory no more than private profit even this calls for careful planning of industry trained technical management and efficient and loyal workers. The first criticism of this governmental excursion into industry, which occurs to an American is that it lacks that incentive to effort, which the profit motive provides. In Western countries, the greater part of the production and distribution of commodities and services is conducted by private persons with the object of making profit for themselves and not aiming directly at service to the community. Indeed, if profitable and a disservice, it may be still allowed to continue. Nevertheless, incentives to work have bothered all employers of labor. Higher wage, shorter hours, and better conditions of labor are the usual incentives in Western lands. But in the Soviet Union, the workers had to be asked to adjust their demand for wages to the level of production which meant sacrifice for the poor who had never had much. To induce competition and extra effort among workers was a difficult task in a world where most, most laborers tried to reduce output, discouraged piecework pay, and malingered on the job as a matter of policy. The Soviets tried to combat this by encouraging competition in work, emulation, voluntary effort, like that which helped build in Moscow, the most beautiful subway in the world. A series of public awards and orders have been instituted for manual labor, as well as scientific research or art creation and suggestions have been encouraged and rewarded in every line of work. In 1930, over a half million rationalization suggestions from workers were received from the state, were received from workers were received the state which resulted in savings of 20 million rubles. Stalin said in 1933, the most remarkable feature of competition is the radical revolution it has wrought in men's views of labor because it transforms labor from a disgraceful and painful burden as it was reckoned before into a matter of honor, a matter of glory, a matter of valor and heroism. There is not and cannot be anything similar to it in capitalist countries. There under the capitalists, the most desirable end which earns social approval is to have an income from investments, to live on interest and to be freed from toil (laughs) which is regarded as a contemptible occupation. This program calls for planning of human action and control of the material world on a scale never before attempted, and to an extent which modern civilization was, has hitherto regarded as impracticable. <laughs> to the astonishment of the Western world, the first five-year plan, even enlarged in scope, was substantially fulfilled in four and a quarter years. A second five-year plan for 1933 to 1937 was immediately put into operation. The significance of this was increased by the financial collapse of the Western European world in 1929, which made the projected invasion of Russia impossible. This confirmed the Russians in their firm belief that Western capitalism was on the edge of complete collapse because of inherent contradictions and paradoxes. The Soviets argue that this planning is the only alternative to the anarchy of individual free initiatives with its recurrent booms and slumps and with its perpetual mass of unemployed. They say that demand for goods and services is fairly stable and can be calculated. That production to meet this demand can be arranged without letting speculation overproduce in particular lines for possible individual profit or make artificial scarcities for higher prices. Thus, financial storms and panics can be avoided. Only long experience over a span of years can prove this. But the experience of the Soviet republics up to 1936 cannot be ignored. The Western world answers that planning involves the slavery of the working class. But does it involve more slavery than other methods of doing the world's work? If a man lives, he must work himself or live off the work of others. Labor on the part of somebody is compulsory. The choice of labor is wide in Russia, by educational opportunity, by promotion according to ability, by desert. But for for the total amount of labor and its efficiency and distribution, there is compulsion. But such compulsion exists everywhere and always has. It is greater in Russia than elsewhere, if we remember that the Soviets allow no idle rich. It is however, clear that for such a planned state, there must be leadership. The conventional industrial state of the Western world depended on the self-appointed leadership of captains of industry with profit as a chief motive. This had to be supplemented by philanthropy and the ideals of human progress as expressed by popular leaders in literature and art in religion and in social progress the occurrence and efficiency of such social leadership was left mostly to chance there is little effort to substitute science for chance in human social progress this was because such scientific leadership in human conduct was regarded as impossible in soviet russia the communist party in 1936 appeared not as a conventional political party but as an organized but as an organization designed to train leaders for the state The function of its membership was extra legal and thus certainly liable to abuse. But on the other hand, its objects were clear and its ideals high. It based action on the communism of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. As modified by Lenin and Stalin and by decisions of the party Congress after long discussion and broad experience. The party requires in it membership, the same regularity, and obedience to decision and discipline, which political parties usually ask. Like members of a religious order, the communist must obey orders as to work and place of work. And he takes what is in reality a vow of poverty or at least low income. The chief fact is that an attempt is seriously made to keep membership on a high level of intelligence and character, and periodical, dismissals from membership are made when the members fall below the standard. Of course, the members have certain privileges and this tempts many to join who are in fact below the ideals. They attempt to base leadership first on science and secondly, on special training and actual experience. Their scientific foundation is Marxism as modified by Lenin and Stalin and others. And their course of study and action is membership in the communist party with this discipline, study, um, I think the pages might be reversed.
0: Uh, I think it skips page, for some reason, page 121 is missing. It just goes from 120 to 122.
3: Oh, okay. Uh, well, continuing on 122, 1917 said, Mohammedans of Russia, Tartars of the Volga and Crimea, Kyrgyz and Sarts of Sib- Siberia and Turkestan, Turks and Tartars of Transcaucasia, your beliefs and customs, your national institutions and culture are hereafter free and inviolable. You have the right to them, know your rights, as well as those of all the peoples of Russia are under the powerful protection of the revolution and of the organs of the Soviets for workers, soldiers, and peasants," unquote. This did not remain mere declamation. The pogrom against Jews, which long played in Russia the role of lynching in the United States, disappeared forthwith. And in 1936, over the whole area between the Arctic Ocean and the Black Sea and the Asian mountains, with vastly differing races and nationalities, men and women, irrespective of physical traits or color, of skin, even including occasional African Negroes, could associate freely, travel in the same public vehicles, and go to the same restaurants and hotels sit next to each other in the same colleges and places of amusement, marry wherever there is mutual liking, engage in any craft or profession for which they are qualified, join the same societies, pay the same taxes, and be elected to any office without exception. No other nation on earth can boast of such a situation. Nor did the Soviets forget the oppressed peoples of the earth, the colored races, the colonial peoples, the exploited nations, they declared in 1923, quote, as the natural ally of the oppressed peoples, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics seeks to live in peace and friendly relations with all peoples and to establish economic cooperation with them. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics places before itself the aim of furthering the interests of the laboring masses of the whole world. Over the enormous territory stretching from the Baltic to the Black and White Seas and to the Pacific Ocean, The Union is already realizing the fraternity of nations and the triumph of labor, but it is striving at the same time to bring about friendly cooperation between the peoples of the whole world." No modern nation has equaled the Soviets in the emancipation of women. They were not content with removing legal disabilities and enfranchising them, but gave women also economic and household freedom. Quote, a victory for socialism, Lenin had said is impossible until a whole half of toiling mankind, the working woman, enjoys equal rights with men and until she no longer is kept a slave by her household and family." Sex equality from the first was the object of all legislation. Women married or single could vote and hold office, could work at any task at the same wage as men with the same chance of promotion. They shared all rights of property and the same rights as men in divorce and care of children. By 1920, Lenin could say that no country in the world was so free from sex disabilities in law or custom as the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. In the matter of religion, Russia has come in for endless criticism. This is partly because of the status of the church in modern lands and partly because of conditions peculiar to Russia. An organization which claims knowledge above science and the right to dictate the the distinction between right and wrong conduct for individuals must of necessity be reactionary and slow in every reform. Why in England was the church opposed to universal suffrage and trade unions? Why in the United States did the main body of churchgoers fight the abolition of slavery, Negro suffrage and Negro equality? Why did the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People have the greatest difficulty in inducing the churches to oppose lynching? Because the church stands and must stand for things as they are, for reaction, for dogma. The church may conserve after the battle for righteousness has been fought, but it never has fought and never can fight as a body for unpopular ideals. Thus every cause, be it right or wrong, must begin by an attack on established religion or it will never begin. Even after the rise of modern science and the rejection of religious dogma by educated men, there remains a disposition to refrain from disturbing the faith of the ignorant masses of men because this might encourage despair and revolt. Most modern lands have therefore been content with the strange dichotomy between its professed creeds and the real beliefs of its leading minds. If however, the masses of people could and would be raised to intelligent action this dichotomy must disappear. With the rise of democracy and broader political action in the Western world, there came what used to be called the battle between faith and science, which after the industrial revolution tended toward a synthesis of modified church dogma and religious double talk on the part of scientists and educated folk in general. Church dogma was sustained by belief that after all the masses of folk could not in our time, at least, be raised so as not to need the opium of religion. This Russian communism challenged for the first time in actual political life and not merely in the classroom. This meant inevitably a fight with dogmatic religion and with all forces and people interested in sustaining and prolonging the power of the church. Whatever chance there was to postpone or evade this battle was made impossible by the very character Of the Russian established church. With an establishment like this church in almost total control of the minds, beliefs, hopes, hates, and fears of the masses, communist government, if it hoped even to begin its reforms, must start with a duel to the death. The Russian Orthodox Church in the early 20th century represented the worst tendencies of religion. The Tsar as head of the church had in 1916 as one of his chief advisors, a drunken, thieving, dissolute monk, who disgusted the world. The village priests were for the most part ignorant and superstitious. The wealthy monasteries thrived on, quote, miracles. An English professor of moral philosophy, John McMurray said in 1934, quote, nearly all that religion has been and has meant in Russia ought to perish forever from the face of the earth and from the memory of men. If then the Soviet government was to survive, it had to begin with a fight on the established church. The Soviets early took a stand against supernaturalism and closed miracle-selling shrines. They encouraged the formation of anti-religious societies, which had in 1929, a half million members. Energetic campaigns against religion was made part of the first five-year plan. The atheistic movement grew rapidly and had in 1936, many million followers. However, the Soviets did not ban churches entirely, nor did they attempt to abolish religion. They limited religious activity and stripped the Orthodox Church of its immense wealth. But neither Christians, Jews, Muslims, nor Buddhists were persecuted. And there is no law against the private practice of any creed. This was the union of Soviet Socialist Republics as I saw it and read about it in 1936. I was convinced that it it had earned its right to exist and carry on its work. I believed that the success which it had made already, despite mistakes and in the midst of unexampled difficulties, proved that many, if not most, of its beliefs and methods would influence the world and spread to its lands and peoples. Especially, I was convinced that fear of communism was groundless and attempts to suppress it doomed to failure. Indeed, it has been said that in the history of human government, there quote, has been no such colossal and exciting an experiment as centers here. So I continued my long journey from Moscow to Manchuria in November 1936.
0: I think that's a good place for us to uh, pause the reading for today.
3: Okay.
4: Thank you, Michelle, for your beautiful reading. I feel like if you were on an audio book, I'd i read a thousand books listening to your voice. <laughs> yeah.
3: Oh
1: yeah. <laughs> wow.
3: That's uh, that's really too kind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable reading, Michelle.
0: <laughs> uh, I think I think it was a good idea. Also, the to put the read- the text on the screen. I mean, our viewers can say in the comments whether they found that helpful or not, but I think it's <laughs> helpful.
3: Okay, that's good to hear.
0: But uh, I mean, you know, we can get into, uh, continue building off the presentation doc, even in the beginning and looking at the text through some of that. I mean, what comes to my mind initially is um, speaking of this liberal consensus, I mean, I think this section was like a systematic point by point challenge to the liberal consensus, the, the liberal consensus view on the Soviet Union, um, all the things that we've been told about how there's no democracy there, there's a stifling of all kinds of thought, stifling of religious freedom, all these things he, he addressed and took them uh, very seriously I mean, he took the soviet experiment very seriously and um again it strikes me about how much social science our political imagination has been stifled by this anti-communism because we can't we're not allowed to take this uh human experience seriously in uh looking at how to how to address the challenges facing us today which is something that's really impoverished our our vision of the way forward There was also a comment, uh, it was uh, from uh, Doc's presentation when he was talking about uh, anti-communism in the black movement or addressing it by uh, Jerome Muhammad. He says, uh, the Nation of Islam's forward motion was instituted in part because of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's relationships with socialists, many of which work for Muhammad Speaks, including several of its editors and Charles P. Howard, uh, Muhammad Speaks United Nations correspondent who was M- uh, minister Malcolm X's principal influence in terms of connections with Asia and, Af- and Africa because of his relationship uh, with world leaders.
1: Mm-hmm. That's very true. And uh, it's so interesting and people don't, don't understand this. The nation of Islam has never uh, espoused anti-communism. Never did. In fact, I know maybe one of the editors of their national newspaper who was a member of the Communist Party at the time that he was an editor. And if you read the Nation of Islam, I mean, pardon me, Muhammad speaks. Uh, well, it's one of the great political newspapers uh, that has ever existed in this country, and certainly among black, the black press. But I agree with Jarron that no, it was, and in fact, I would say the doctrines of the nation of Islam uh, uh, predisposed towards a socialist organization of black life.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, on that point, actually, uh, recently had found out that they've put up a lot of the archives of Muhammad Speaks online and it's really a tremendous resource for the history of that period because uh, there's so much covered from every liberation movement. And on that point, they, they, uh, there's even articles about how, for example, in Vietnam or Cuba, there's a socialist reorganization of society, even looking at how food is being grown and uh, diet patterns and so on and how they, uh, in how they relate to the struggle against colonialism and neocolonialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of very similar in some ways to what Du Bois is doing here, like taking these societies and these peoples seriously and what they're doing, um, not like the the kind of arrogant American approach, uh, which is to dismiss them, mm-hmm. um, you mm-hmm. know, try to turn them into stereotypes and, and whatnot.
1: You, if I could just say something, John, you know, I've always uh, been influenced by your you as a Muslim but your interpretation of the Nation of Islam as a legitimate reform movement within world Islam. And um, it's been very impactful and it it has helped the work of the free school to interact with the Nation of Islam here in Philadelphia and to have healthy uh, relationships. But I, I I think your thinking has been very, very valuable and also how you and Brandon Doe in particular have uh, explored this concept of an Asiatic black man mm-hmm. and how I don't, I, you know, you can speak for yourself but how that has influenced your identification of yourself in in the United States as a Muslim. You know, I, it's just very extraordinary to me.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, uh... Just to say a bit about it, I think, uh, again, like you're saying, this movement, the Nation of Islam movement, and the ideas that emerged from it, it was, and it is really an attempt to take uh, a religion seriously, and also to take civilization seriously, and colonialism, Mm -hmm. and like you were saying, move society towards uh, reformulation and reconstruction away from white supremacy and colonialism, while tapping into the this spiritual knowledge and the spiritual life worlds of the people, and I mean, even uh, coming back a bit to bringing it back a little bit to Russia and America, the way he's describing religion is very interesting because he's talking about, uh, you know, how in the Soviet Union they're, they're dealing with their particular legacy of religion, and they've had they have a lot of negative things with the Orthodox Church. It doesn't mean that they're trying to eliminate religion from the Soviet Union, but they're trying to concretely grapple with their histories. And it, I think maybe you could argue it's, it's similar uh, with the nation of Islam in the U.S. They're trying to uh, grapple with these, uh, with the legacy of religion in the U.S., the legacy of the color line um, mm-hmm. and the current realities of racism and imperialism. So it's a move away from a dogmatic approach To dealing with these questions, to I mean a a liberation-oriented approach, and so I think it's also it's useful for us to compare how these different uh, leaderships and and uh, approach you know these experiments try to to deal with these uh, questions.
3: I I wanted to say just you know on the twenty-five pages that we read today, I think I think Du Bois's his framing of Russia as, as this new world experiment is tremendously important. And I think we've discussed this before, but the way that most people um, or a lot of these academics or leftists, the way that they conceive of the Soviet Union or of let's say Cuba today or even China is very, it's completely static. It's It's focused on maybe an isolated moment in history or a particular characteristic, but completely misses that it's almost like um how do I describe you know like the motion you know beneath what is actually happening what was happening in the world at that time what was happening with these countries and I think that's what makes Russian America in part so tremendously beautiful yeah. because you know we we've read like Souls of Black Folk or Black Reconstruction and Talking within the context of America, I think, I think Du Bois does something so brilliant with representing the strivings of uh, black America or the American Negro, but Russia and America is such a great leap because You know, you see, you see this paradigm of civilizational striving and um, Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, yeah, it's just really, really beautiful and I was thinking especially about that passage that we read where um, it's on page 107. He says, behind is Russia and Europe before is Russia and China.
1: Oh, well, No, no, read it one more time. Uh, Russia and Asia, and I think he says Asia, Russia, say that again. I'll read it
3: one more time. (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm.
3: He says, behind is Russia and Europe before is Russia and China. Here meet the past, the present, and what will be. Uh, yeah, our steam in the cold blast falls and lies low, like lace across the waters, the sun casts aside her morning mantle of mist and shines white and clear. Um, yeah, you just really got a sense of how, how much Russia rep- represented a new possibility for the world. Um, Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think this is this is the task of the revolutionary in this time still is to you know apply these same eyes to what's happening in America today, what's happening globally, what's happening in Africa and Asia, um, and and if that's the way that we're trying to understand the world, we're always going to see a way forward or a way out, as Du Bois did. I and mean, you said Doc, like he had written this at the height of McCarthyism or at the height of anti-communism. Um, taking such a brave stand, you know, in this (laughs) magnificent work which has been completely obscured. Um, Yeah, yeah, but, you know, 70 years later is really the time to renew it for the way forward. Yeah,
5: Yeah, and um, I know Doc Doc had mentioned that when we were on the phone a few weeks ago that I said that I think that Russian America is one of Du Bois's most important works. And I think part of sort of even how I picture this is like, like reading Russian America, it's almost like there's this puzzle piece that's at the center of like world history that has just been missing. And Du Bois just like puts that centerpiece in and it allows you to understand everything else. Like, you know, last week how we, we talked about um, what fascism represented and how that was... Um, a reaction to the Soviet Union and even in in this yeah what what everyone has been saying in terms of how the Soviet Union represented an experiment in a new type of civilization where before we've assumed that um, based on the western model that civilization means like the the elite and the cultured elite and all of that but actually what Russia was attempting was a new type of civilization in which Um, it was for like yeah the broadest masses of the people who made up um, who made up the Soviet Union and yeah I mean it strikes me as very similar to I feel like the way that like Du Bois approaches like black reconstruction as like we don't know the full we don't know the actual story of reconstruction because the part of the American Negro has been so deliberately omitted and lied about um, when it really the when really the um the black people were at the very center of what was happening in reconstruction as the sort of um attempt to yeah rebuild American society and to try to create a new type of democracy um and to sort of move American civilization in a a different kind of direction um even in even like I remember like reading like the world in Africa you know as like Du Bois is looking at the collapse of the Western world from World War I and World War II and saying like, actually we need to look to Africa as being, allowing us to explain what's happening with these catastrophic crises in the world and how like no one else I feel like would have really taken that approach or been that daring in how um, Du Bois was able to like, yeah, just, I feel like just sort of like wade through all of the clutter and all of the propaganda and all of the lies and say, actually, this is at the center of how we explain the world today and where we think the world can go in the future. Um, But yeah, I mean, that was, this chapter especially, I think um, validates what I've been feeling in terms of how important this, how important Russia and America is in terms of being able to explain how the world was evolving during this time. and also, like, how do we, how do we, yeah, chart a path forward for our own times?
3: I think also um, on that note, it's. I like how you through Du Bois's writing, you. I think also what's important is where he where he sees beauty or what he sees as significant. You get a sense of it while reading and it's not strictly about the outcomes and he says it at the very beginning of the chapter I think on page 104 he says that it's not about um whether the Soviet Union ultimately fails or not it's it's about the process of this great experiment and seeing how it's changing you know the values the very nature of an entire civilization of human beings but then ultimately even the world and Yeah, I mean, some of the pages that we read that were so beautiful in their descriptiveness, just the people and how, um, yeah, how the economy was being restructured, you know, these masses of people coming out to vote um, by by ridding a society of luxury saving, I think he said maybe a hundred, you know, the cost of 100 million loaves of bread and um, the landscape of, you know, where he was traveling to get to Moscow and um, you you really get a sense for you know what a what a genuine revolutionary process is, which um, which can span decades, centuries. Um, but it's it's really the process, and so few people have you know eyes that are clear enough to to see the subtlety and the nuance of it as it's happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the task of work like ours. <laughs> Yeah,
4: just to to piggyback just a little bit, um, I think the question Jeremiah is suggesting that he sees in this particular text is, how do we, what Du Bois is asking is, how do we move from a white civilization to a human civilization? And he's using this as a profound example. And to Michelle's point, back on page 104, he's talking about, well, can we centralize human welfare rather than profit the chief end of the industry? rather an experiment, a dream yet to be realized or to die with noble memories, unexampled hostility amid deep-seated bitterness and reclamation." So he's going deep into understanding that can what they were trying to build here, well, it's decided to bring not for the greatest profit, but because the people need certain things. And so where the masses rule, and and he talks about this is the inevitable difficulties of all beginnings, and I think in some ways uh, it's so beautiful because I see, uh, it is so, it, it, I don't know if it's better than Black Reconstruction, because Black Reconstruction is so clear and so beautiful. And I think it is. It is. it parallels it so much because in Black Reconstruction, he, he rethinks not only history, but the history of the whole Reconstruction period. Right. And at the time it needed to be rethought of and, and re-narrated because The whole dominant narrative was that Black people had messed up American democracy and that the violence of the KKK was in many ways justified because of this sort of egregious damage that was done to the American democratic project by Black folks and elected officials and so on. And so Du Bois does something far more radical with Black Reconstruction. He started with the Black worker. And you see the same parallel here with the Russian worker and the centrality of the the worker too an economic theory that's producing right. not profit, but the welfare of the people being supreme, right? In other words, the black worker was the vanguard leading force in the class struggle. He sees the same thing with the Russian workers. That's right. Uh-huh. And my last point, I don't want to talk too much because that gets to Doc's point where he even goes deeper into the dialectic, not of twos, but of threes, when it gets to black reconstruction. And you can still see the same sort of structure of logic being applied to this Russian uh, yeah. situation. <laughs> The last thing I want to say, and I'll let somebody else talk, is for me, reading this is, is, is the part of history, like you said, Jeremiah, that we all were looking for. We were, where, where was it? And of course, who had produced it? It was Du Bois, right? And so here it is. We're all looking for this history, this explanation, these details, this social scientist that's actually going there to try and study the nature of the society and the problems and all the social historical forces at play. And here he is producing profound work. So for me, what this solidifies is really one—you know some of the elements of Du Boisian phenomenology and the necessity of Du Boisian phenomenology in our moment to supplement Doc's beginning presentation. Think about it. Du Bois' phenomenology has knowledge genius. He's starting with the heart, he proceeds to the brain. The heart is the source of human genius, right? That's the first point. Then Du Bois is always the second point of his phenomenology is dialectical relationships, right? That dialectical relation between thought and action. You're not right. just theorizing about, the, he's going and he's putting it in practice, seeing it in practice, so on and so forth. Activity is critical to knowing. Du Bois is active agent of knowing, going to the source, right? So active engagement with the human condition and human suffering. And then third, m- one of my favorites is, a social or a human purpose guides one's approach to knowing. Mm-hmm. So here is Du Bois, going back to the greatest experiment uh, to, to provide life for us in 2021 of direction of the importance of this particular conversation, the details of that that exploded here. Uh, and it is profound to me that we have this critical engagement. And I think we're doing it perfect, reading every word, every sentence Absolutely. out loud and <laughs> dissecting. And I just to add to oh, sorry.
6: I just also wanted to point out um, what I liked about this portion was how um, in 113, page 113 in Soviet Russia from the beginning, the revolution stressed education. And yeah. that um, was kind of hitting what Michelle was talking about. But I was thinking about, Jahan, what you said in terms of the liberal consensus um, and like why there are these criticisms of the Soviet Union of like, oh, they're against women, they were racist, which also, you know, Brandon, you're pointing out, um, that while Du Bois is there, he is seeing that it's not the case. And why? Because of the question of education, or at least, you know, is centered on that. Um, but yeah.
0: Yeah, on that very point, there's a comment from uh, Purba Chatterjee. She says, uh, The emphasis placed on education by the Soviet Union is extremely striking. In Of the Ruling of Men, Du Bois says, quote, No state is civilized which has citizens too ignorant to help rule it. Or, in other words, education is not a prerequisite to political control. Political control is the cause of popular education. End quote. <laughs> This is stark. Con- this is in stark contrast to the trend nowadays to deem masses of people too ignorant and uneducated to be allowed to participate in any way, uh, in any effective way to their own governance. Um, and yeah, I was also struck by that point uh, throughout this book, but particularly in this section. Uh, Basically, also when he talks about democracy, he's talking about explaining how democracy has developed in the Soviet Union. And you know he goes to the point about voting, like, yes, it's not this kind of suffrage parliament system, but how the Communist Party took this very uh, backwards, oppressed, purposely undereducated or uneducated uh, mass of people and built them up to the point where they could take control of the state, where they could basically build up a system of democracy, Soviet democracy. And, and education is so key in that. I mean, that is really again breaking with the liberal consensus that's not something that's thought about in the liberal consensus but here it's education is so important schools uh, other programs uh, libraries he talks about the schoolhouse being the most uh, the second most important building pretty much everywhere the first most important is the communist party center which is also used extensively for public education so I mean it shows the priority of the society but it shows how important I mean, now I'm also thinking about how often Du Bois would talk about, you know, somewhere else he said the goal of education is not to turn uh, men into carpenters, but carpenters into men. I mean, this is again, this is where he's he's showing it very concretely, what what human beings can become through education.
4: Hey, Jahan, I have one question for you. Was it in chapter three where Du Bois had talked about in this in this text here that it took three or four centuries uh for- for Europe to accomplish that, right. what socialism right. tried to do in a matter of 10 years. Right. And, he was, and, and right. to your point, he was talking about uplifting the peasantry. That part of society that had been most backward, right? And it's you have to free the peasantry. And he said, free them physically and psychologically, That's right. That's right? right? And yeah. thus the literacy campaign that you're hinting about with the purpose of education and not the purpose of education that we see here in the West, which is indoctrination if you're white and subjugation if you're black, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or an education that in some ways, uh, you know, you get a you get a degree, still can't get a job. <laughs> now you're in debt for the rest of your life, type of thing. So he's looking at the examining education as it relates to a social order, as it also position. And, and I think it was in dusk of dawn. He talks about the economic theory determines what a student should know. Right. That's how the West had approaches has approached it. So he's saying, hold on, flip this thing on his head here. How do we uplift the peasantry, the most backward elements of society? How and this is again going back to Reconstruction with the black worker, who is then the most conscious element of society, yeah, yeah. the worker, the peasant, yeah, so on and yeah, so
1: forth.
6: yeah. yeah. one the- thing about the worker, just to add, like I really I noticed that I well when I first read this chapter, I was thinking about that voting thing, and I was like, wow, like you know this that kind of you know discussion debate I really like that but on the next page it said that the um Russian union is not there for like the American union a group designed to fight an employer or an industry for higher wages or pensions for or better conditions these these things they want and fight for but the path to achieving this is through the trade union hierarchy which means that all industry is taken into account and not a single plant or one branch of industry. But into this account, the interest of the worker is considered by his representatives, elected by the voice of each little group of shop employees. They vote in union meetings and elect delegates to district meetings. The district organization elects provincial bodies and so on up to the all union Congress of Trade Unions, which is an organ of government considered by Lenin as first in importance, no government policy is decided without consulting this body. And just that thing of an organ of government, like when we talk about the uh, dictatorship of the proletariat, which is what you're referring to, Brandon, that's the same, you know, that's in turn, but that also you need the education of the people for that to happen, Mm -hmm. Um, one. But two, the fact that it's an organ of government, it just kind of stood out to me, this read. But,
1: and you know, uh, all education is free, which means that everybody has access to education uh, compared to what we have. And then the generic question of how can you have democracy without an educated population and all of the distractions. Uh, and I, I'll tell you, you know, Michelle, I have to just, um, take my hat off to you, that reading is so important to really grasp uh, the beauty and everybody's acknowledging the beauty of this, this writing, his simple descriptions which open up your eyes to something you may not have ever seen, you know? Uh, and, but I wanted to say this, you know, and he uh, Du Bois brings this out, how to coordinate the bottom up and the top down at the same time, because the Communist Party is the leadership of society. He doesn't, he's not an anarchist. Oh, let the workers and peasants do it on their own. They'll find their way. No, for Du Bois, you do need leadership. And that does tend to be top down. But then you also have the bottom up. By the way, the word Soviet means councils. And so all of these councils, all of this multi layered interacting uh, centers of discussion of debate, I'm a part of my city, I'm going to debate gentrification and property taxes, and whether or not Temple has a right, or UFP have a right to do whatever they're doing. Uh, we don't have that here. Uh, the other th- last thing I just want to say is this. You read Du Bois and you realize how intellectually and politically impoverished the American discourse is, and how politically impoverished the left is. There cannot be an American left without Du Bois. Just can't have it. I don't think, I think in a lot of ways, an Asian left needs Du Bois. Uh, he is one of the great thinkers of the modern epoch. And um, I, I, if I could just, I, I'm just, because uh, I'm, I'm so. Um, Aware of the left, and I know, like Johan, we read a lot of leftist literature and all of that type of thing. And you walk away all the time with the with the sense of, well, so what? You've said nothing of consequence. You've offered no imagination for a future, and you're really not addressing the working class and the masses of people. In fact. Uh, you seem to have utter contempt for working people. And here you have Du Bois. And, he, and, and I guess he's saying, I go go along with Brandon on this, what was not fully realized in reconstruction is now being realized in the Soviet Union. You know, it's just, so, it's so beautiful. I mean, I don't even, yeah.
4: And Doc, may I add just one small point. When you were talking about the people, have to know how to read, so the state could be a state of the working class. That's right, absolutely,
1: and, and, and they, that was one of the achievements of Reconstruction: public education.
4: Yeah, you must be. He's saying you must be educated. You must know what is going on, so they can be the masters of the state.
1: Then that's right, that's right, and 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 that's why you know in in uh, Souls of Black Folk, when he critiques Booker T. Washington for you know. Uh, uh, eviscerating black education, you know, and saying that's normal, you know, you don't need to know anything all you need to do is know how to work with your hands. And that's where he says, it's not to make uh, philosophers carpenters but to make carpenters philosophers. So, he's, I mean, I just, I just love his vision. Um, I also love the
4: fact that, you know, when he had wrote black reconstruction in America. It was at that time where he had ceased to be relevant to the movement, according to David Levering Lewis, as you suggested. Oh, yeah. and even when you get to the Academy, I think it, when it was uh, it, Souls of Black Folk is this high point. I think Martin Kilson makes that argument at Harvard at some point, point. Mm-hmm. and Souls of Black Folk was the boy, he wrote it when he was 35. Right, well, he, he believed that state. Martin yeah, I Martin yeah, I believe it was Martin Kilsen, one yeah, of I, his I, I, his I, I, You're
1: right. Yeah. But
4: as the boys moved to the left, as he became a leading thinker in the Black Left or in the Black or in the Left period, people said he had lost his direction. That's right.
1: That's what they <laughs> said. That's what they said. And a lot of them said it, and are still saying it.
2: Well, I I just wanted to um add, you know, when we talk about Educating the masses, I, I think of um, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, and a part of his, you know, uh, campaign to become president was to to educate the people, and and that then became the um, the foundation for the people to um, circumvent the coup that was trying to take, you know. Um, Hugo Chavez from power, but but then, you know, I know that a lot of Du Bois's work is obscure, but I recall reading something about how China revered Du Bois and, you know, even created a holiday in his name. And so what and how does Du Bois' writing influences China? Because he says it in this, you know, like from Russia to America to Russia and China. So was there some intentionality yeah, you know, because China's very intentional in their in their civilization. Like I'm just curious what and how Du Bois potentially influenced um China and its its development that the 60, 70 years of China being really intentional with using, you know, capitalism, but maintaining the Communist Party and trying to organize for the 21st century. This new vision of communism. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if there's any sort of correlation.
0: I think that Michelle could say a bit about. Yeah. Nicole. No. I,
3: um. No. I. I think that's a, that's a really important question, and it's actually something that a few of us have been really interested in looking into. Is this link between, um, the Black Freedom Struggle in China and. Um, actually, a few months ago, a few of us had found um, a great Chinese um, literary writer and poet of the 20th century who um, wrote the primary obituary to Du Bois when he died in 1963. And um, we, we've been working on translating it, <laughs> and I think we're going to be done soon. Um, yeah, it's it's you actually can't find it in English. Uh, it hasn't been translated yet, but. Um, Yeah, I have it pulled up right now. And I think what's really outstanding about the obituary is, um, you know, she this is her name is Bing Bingxing. And she's, um, she was, she was a very progressive um, woman writer for her time. And yeah, what's outstanding is the way that she describes her encounters with Du Bois, but um, also the way that she's looking to the struggle of black America for and also trying to interpret you know, what it means for China. And I think what she was getting at in some ways, maybe I can read something. Um, actually, let me see if there might be a fitting paragraph for me to read. Um.
4: While you're trying to find that Michelle, let me just add one thing. Uh, to Jamila's mm-hmm. point here with Du Bois, you know, what, I think one of the big lessons that this this text is teaching me from Du Bois, he's, he's always thinking about he had to transgress and he had to undermine standard historical writing and the standard American social science.
1: That's
4: right. uh, and this is very important because this is something that we proceed in, in the wrong direction. And we have to go back to Du Bois to see why it's so important to transgress and undermine that standard historical writing. And, and for him, it, it's, re, it's requiring a sort of a philosophical redoing of the social sciences, one, as he's uniting history with philosophy to produce sociology, as he would say in, in Dusk of Dawn. Uh, but he's also creating a new phenomenology. He's also creating a new logic. He's also creating a new epistemolo- epistemology. And I think this is, these two texts for me is really solidifying that uh, Russian America and Black Reconstruction, uh, the parallels are so strikingly beautiful. Yeah. But it's revolutionary works in a counter revolutionary society. Right. And that's, and that's, that's of, of utmost importance, right? It's revolutionary, not merely because it challenges that standard treatment uh, of Reconstruction or Russia at this time, but it, it, it's of our time as well. Um, and what it's doing philosophically is, philosophically is blowing my mind in a sense. Um, and really, I'm, trying to, I'm still trying to understand it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I think, I think also, I mean, similarly, what stands out about, you know, this, this relationship between Du Bois and China or Russia is, you get the sense that the world was drawing something very, was drawing, you know, like a new method or a new possibility from what was happening in Black America. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can read a little bit from the speech um, or from the obituary that this um, this Chinese writer wrote. She said, Uh, Quote, I remembered the famous black singer Paul Robeson singing in the auditorium of our school some days ago, quote, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. His voice was so impassioned, so throbbing to the heart and soul. The discrimination and ravage faced by American Negroes was so wretched and ruthless, yet everything that I'd heard and seen, heard and seen was but a fraction. Um, And then she She talks a little bit more um, later on about its link to imperialism and um, I'm seeing. Yeah, she writes, Du Bois researched history and researched the social sciences in order to write many academic works about African black people. At the same time, he endlessly wrote many works that reflected the black struggle and inspired the will of black people. At the university, he taught, edited publications, and started and participated in many Black liberation activities. He constantly struggled for the liberation of Black people. It was not until 40 years later in Beijing, the capital of New China, that I paid tribute to this African American writer, poet, warrior, and warrior. I felt an indescribable excitement and honor. And then later on, she writes, um, the Chinese people will always remember their words of gratitude and will double their efforts to impose imperialism and support the cause of the black struggle, forever pushing forward. Um, there's a lot there that wasn't the most composed summary of the of the speech, but basically at the at the start of it, I think what struck me so much is the way that she describes how um, I think her uncle would tell her stories when she was just a young child about uh, the plight of the American Negro and how, you know, as, as a young Chinese girl in China, she would go to night, um, she would go to sleep at night with tears in her eyes, like imagining what was happening in America. Um, and then, you know, she's writing this when she's much older, but um, yeah, there's something about it which, which is just so, it's just so spiritually profound and how she saw herself even in the Black struggle, um, how she felt it in the words of Robeson, in um, the intellectual and the moral example of Du Bois for not just America, but the the world. Um, I also wanted to say that um, I think the conversation about education is really important because in some ways, I think it's a question which so desperately needs to be clarified in this time in America. Um, because we see the rise of identity politics, we see the rise and influence of the elite university. And um, we're in a moment when, because of diversity and inclusion, low income people or you know people of diverse backgrounds are being pushed forth into these academic institutions. And so in some ways, there is a greater access to education. But going back to what, you know, you had said, um, Doc and Brandon, it what Du Bois brings is that phenomenology where it's not just about education, but rather f- toward what purpose, toward what goal. And that's what c- people are completely missing today. I mean, if anything, we have more knowledge than ever at our fingertips. But so many people don't have the clarity to even ask yeah like toward toward the upliftment of what um and yeah I mean you know you can think of knowledge as a tool but I feel that whereas institutions teach people to think of knowledge as let's say a hammer <laughs> or an axe you know Du Bois used it as a paintbrush he used it for creativity and to see possibility and to imagine a new world, and that's the type of education that we need to bring back. Michelle, I think you're, I think you're hitting it
4: right on the head. Du Bois is talking about, in order to realize human potentiality, uh, there has to be leadership, there has to be knowledge, and there has to be a social science that the ways in which he is defining it, law and chance, and but I think you're also hitting on the point where you're, you're critiquing. Du Bois is throwing the whole question of American democracy off the table. He's saying, this is a fraud, this is an illusion, this is is grave deception. He's saying democracy doesn't exist in America. It's merely an illusion that's being put forward to sustain a very particular philosophy and ideology that's willing to have a very minimum of change and a maximum of static perfection. And as you said so beautifully, Michelle, education becomes the instrument of the white supremacist social order. And as an instrument, it's trying to produce what? Productive citizens as opposed to critical thinkers. That's right. You can't, you can't operate a social order with critical thinkers challenging everything or unless you take the Russian model, how beautiful it was that they had that discussion, that dialogue, that dialectic constantly central to the interaction of educational purpose. Not in the West, education is supposed to stifle creativity, stifle imagination, yeah. you're gonna be a productive citizen. And as Du Bois says, an unquestioning worshiper of the shrine of the social order in which you live. You see, that's the purpose of education uh, at, at all other expense. So I think you hit it perfectly. So beautiful about human potentiality relies upon all those instruments, all that leadership, this type of knowledge, the approach to knowledge, and what is the social science we're going to utilize. And there's no question about it. We must go to Du Bois. And for, mm-hmm. I completely agree with Doc's assessment. There's no way you can consider yourself to be on the left and, and completely dismiss Du Bois or move away from Du Bois, act like you don't need Du Bois uh, or, or try to frame Du Bois as a liberal or some elitist or whatever the, some of these checks have done. Mm-hmm.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, this, and thus we're back to the whole problem, I guess you can call it a problem of anti-communism and how, and you could you could just go down the names of prominent leftists, black and white and whatever else. And one thing that's always missing, of course, Du Bois. Uh, but it's all. But the du, when I mention Du Bois, it's the Du Bois that's palatable to the liberal consensus. And when Du Bois goes against that, then he's no longer acceptable. But this anti-communism and how it's used to cancel and smear Du Bois and. I, once again, I just want to say you, you guys, you didn't see it like I saw it when the Soviet Union collapsed. there was celebration that we socialists no longer have to be associated with the union of socialist Soviet republics. Now we're free of that. And now we can uh, talk about socialism. Uh, without having to mention Stalin and what they also meant without having to talk about Du Bois. And so it is 30 years later, look at the left, look at the carnage. They can't lead anything. Leadership is an ideological project and they cannot lead. And we all know that and they know it and it's all performative. I, I think um, this, this is one of the things I want to, oh, what does the Bois say? Where does the purpose emerge from? It emerges once you put labor at the foundation of society, working people, creative working class people. Once you put labor at the foundation, education takes on a whole different Meaning. If education is only about me and, well, certain petty bourgeois causes, then any discussion of labor can be canceled. You know, I think um, just a small point uh, take the Department of African American Studies at Temple University, one of the great frauds of academic history. A great fraud, uh, and what is its what is its uh, as I say reason for existence? Its reason for existence is to disparage working people and to create a black elite which can fit into a cosmopolitan elite that upholds world imperialism in the name of Blackness.
4: Doc, was it in Chapter 3 where Du Bois was talking about one of the major challenges being uh, if the revolution was to survive that agricultural production had to be collectivized?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The great question of production of food. The production of food. But see, Du Bois is constantly emphasizing production. Production. The other thing is, uh, I don't know that he gets into this a lot, but the role of communists. First of all, becoming a communist or being admitted into the Communist Party of Vietnam, of Cuba, of the Soviet Union, wherever, is not the same as joining the Democratic Party in Philadelphia. to be a communist is an honorific position. Leadership of that character is honorific. So the communists were supposed to be examples in labor. Heroes of socialist labor, as they called them, were rewarded and the communists were to be the example. And even during World War II, when the Nazis invaded the country, One of the things that affected their political development after the war was that so many communists were killed because in those those wars, the communists were obligated to go to the front, to be the example of heroism and sacrifice. And many of them were killed. So after the war, many of the best that society had produced up to that point uh, were no longer, but that was a sacrifice that the communists made for society as a whole, for labor as a whole, this is, and and to just uh, erase all of that, that what do like what you said, what Du Bois emphasize? the human factor, humanity, and the human striving, human sacrifice based upon, ideological clarity. This is, I mean, I agree with this is so wonderful in what it says about the potential of human beings and of working people, you know, with all of the problems that they are bequeathed by centuries and millennia of oppression and exploitation and how given the opportunity or given a society that frees them, they can, they can become these great heroes of humanity. And that's, it. that's what Du Bois shows us. There is no cynicism and there is no pessimism in Du Bois. Uh, actually I want, on that point, um...
3: I think I've been thinking more and more recently that the revolutionary struggle and process, like you necessarily have to have beauty or optimism. Oh, there
1: is no question. Um,
3: yeah, I mean you feel it in all these people. Uh, like you know, we're talking about boys, all these revolutionary leaders, even this Chinese writer and the way she writes about you know the black struggle in America. It's 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 never nihilistic. It's not cynical. Like it's always imagining a way forward and. I think so much of leftism today is, you know, characterizes optimism or hope as emotional Bosch. I, I guess this is what King said during the civil rights movement. Um, and even when people talk about critical thinking, yeah. they, they conflate, you know, being critical with being cynical.
1: Yeah, but, yeah, right, right, right.
3: But actually I think Du Bois is the genuine critical thinker. He's a model of a genuine yeah. critical
1: thinker. One of right. the foundations of American critical uh, thinking is to attack communism. <laughs> to be anti well, I'm a critical thinker. I Attack Cuba! Oh, really? Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, I think I think genuine and critical thinking, you know, is is seeing a new possibility for civilization or a no new question. human being at every corner, in every turn, and and yeah, it's it's like everyone is saying. There's so much subtlety in the way he writes, but it's tremendously beautiful, and it gives yes. you this very nuanced sense of how a new world can be made and. Yeah, it's it's highly critical.
5: Yeah, I mean, just one thing that I remember from this chapter, there's that line where he talks about coming back to the Soviet Union after his first visit 10 years ago. And he says the differences were not that striking, but they were subtle and significant. And he talks about you know, ordinary working people, like, you know, like the dignity in their lives. And, you know, he, he talks about like foundations and this being the most important thing. And I feel like. Yeah, like to what you're saying, Michelle, it's, I feel like it's like the left in America has substituted like what they think is like revolution, which is all this sort of like um, like superficial very flashy kind of politics. Um, and like they use they go for that instead of actually looking at like what are like what are these like actually human like nuanced like subtle but significant aspects of human life that actually make it beautiful. Um, like how is that connected to labor, how is that connected to like the state to you know this broad political process in which you know you're actually engaging at every possible level like in discussion like whether it's with your village or with like these other Soviets and I you mean know, it just makes me think about how like like I was reading these articles about how like Joe Biden had raised, I believe it was like what, $145 million in dark money anonymous donations, but that his total like campaign ultimately raised like a hun- like one point five billion dollars. And it's like, you know, like Du Bois talks about how like how much money America would save um if they we didn't have advertising. And like how basically like the election was, yeah, it's like a billion dollar, like ad campaign, like a PR campaign, and just how, how ultimately, like, no matter how they try to paint it, how cynical that is, and how, um, yeah, how just what a cynical view of human nature that is, that you basically have to, like, exhaust, like, billions of dollars to fool people into, into buying into whatever it is you're selling, which, uh, which with the election was, you know, the anti-Trump thing, and Joe Biden, and all of that. But yeah,
6: and just sorry. No, no. Yeah, no. just to say like, uh huh, uh-huh, um, that the revolutionary, uh, the revolution that happened for the Soviet Union, it was a process. Like it was just that simple as a process. It's something that was going. It wasn't something that just you know free and uh, no. It took time and effort. Um. But
3: yeah, I just wanted to add on the last point, Jeremiah. You made um, you even see it in the methods of organizing today that the tactic is to fool people into <laughs> believing what you believe rather than <laughs> building something you know where you see genuine you see the genuine potential for intelligence uh, or imagination or you know dignity among the the so-called people you're trying to organize.
6: Um, yeah. And just to say to that, Michelle, like, that, oh, sorry, Samir, I know you're trying to jump in, but um, uh, like, yeah, like that's how you see or understand chance and possibilities, like in people, like that everyday kind of thing too. It's not it's about like that kind of leftist, you know, just grab, you know, whatever small, you know, thing we're given by some promise that Obama or whoever, you know, that kind of thing, that kind of way or mentality. Because what Jeremiah also pointing out is just like the social media question and how everything is so fast and um, readily um, available to ease one's own depression or, you know, however it is that they're feeling like everything is, you could just scroll at it and find your own entertainment, stuff like that but that's just not human either. So just to add that to the question of leftism.
7: Yeah, and thanks Serafina. I'm really moved by, you know, this discussion about beauty and human dignity that we're talking about. Um, I think it's something that Paul Robeson focuses on, the dignity of working people and that's what his art was about. And uh, it reminded me of what I was learning about architecture and uh, molding, that um, the molding represents, you know, in the room or building represents, you know, the civilization or the time period that you're in. And, you know, when you think about Roman columns, uh, you know, there's no purpose in uh, decorating them other than, you know, an expression of the civilization that you're currently in. And, you know, I I remember I was in Pakistan visiting and I was in a really nice house and the build, the the interior had been done with French molding. And it indicated to me, uh, you know, the civilization that that family aspired to. And, uh, you know, I believe one time, you know, Magda was talking to me about the importance of beauty and, you know, a speaker had said to her that, you know, how can you have beauty in a country where, you know, everyone is poor around you, you know, how can you have uh, beauty when the people making the architecture are so poor, like the people making our bridges and our infrastructure. And, uh, you know, even, even in the people constructing the pyramids, it's a myth that they were slaves, that they were given their own tombs near the pyramid, and they were not slaves, and that they were Flipped uh, up as an honor to build the pyramids. So I'm just thinking about this question of human dignity.
4: Yeah, Samir, this is very interesting to tie your point with Jeremiah's and Michelle's. I think this also goes back to chapter three the, the um, what was the phrase? Un- uncaused cause. Yeah. <laughs> and and this, is, this is deep because I think, you know, he's, we we're when, looking at the discussion, we were, he's looking beyond experience. And looking beyond experience, he's talking about experimentation. He's talking about improvisation. He's talking about trials and errors. He's talking about real social science, and he's also talking about beauty because, in the in African sense, beauty is as beauty is as beauty does. It's not in the physical sense of beauty, or how something looks. It's actually how you how how you contribute to the betterment of your people, uh, humanity, so on and so forth. Which is also how King starts to define love in its deepest sense, not some sentimental, wayward sentiment, but by that steadfast commitment to the well-being of other people. And so I think your connection between, the, and that's why I think in some ways Du Bois writes the gift to Black folks, uh, and talking about the essence of beauty. How can a people so demonized, so brutalized, so hated produce such beautiful art for the world in music and literature and everything? And so I think that's really important. I, I'm but the last point, Jeremiah, and I actually have to run. I have to go teach a class, so I apologize. I have to leave early and I'll teach a two-hour class here from one to three. But I think one of the things that you really that stuck with me is you're talking about this question of uh, the element of fear and terror. We're talking about propaganda, right? And how and I think we were having this conversation last week about how propaganda seems to be invading every aspect of your interior life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can you be in the bedroom, you be in the shower, you can't escape propaganda. It's it's almost everywhere because of the ways in which technology is being utilized and uh, narrowing or distracting us from real issues in society. And I think that point is very important, Jeremiah. I don't want to dismiss that point at all because that really stuck with me, uh, the power of propaganda and the ways in which it's being utilized in the 21st century as a form of distraction, as a method of mass distraction. Uh, but let me just say, I appreciate it. I, I unfortunately got to run. I love you guys. I'll see you again soon. Uh, appreciate you.
3: Hi, in.
4: Take care, man. Joining.
0: Uh, maybe we'll bring in some comments.
7: Uh, uh, Jahan, just to add real quickly. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, you know, another thing Brandon just reminded me about was how you know in Moscow, the subways are so beautiful, and I had forgotten about that. But you know, compare that to the su- subways of America, where uh, you know, I was reading a report that in Philadelphia. There's been more fatalities in the past three years in subway tracks than ever before, and a lot of that has to do with the pandemic.
2: And it also reminds
7: me of what Nandita said about the bus stops in Cuba, that they're not decorated in advertisements and branding or that constant propaganda, but they're decorated with art. And I just find that to be so cool. And you know, I really um, it made me makes me want to go to Moscow and see those subways for myself. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's, you know, and on this, the conversation of art, you know, I mean, Du Bois writes that um, <clears throat> art should be used for the purposes of propaganda, you know, and and to be able to um, um, sort of frame the context of what this liberation for humanity looks like through art. Um, and then, you know, as you guys speak about um, um, in poverty, these beautiful sort of institutions of art are, are risen, and I think of jazz. I think of New York. You know, I think of the space of New Orleans and and how jazz originates from that space. And um, all you know, New Orleans still has uh, sort of a context of the city that care forgot. You know, that's that's like rooted in a lot of poverty and you know um, uneducated people, but. In that space, still is it's beautiful. Um, I think I heard someone say um, jazz is one of the great institutions that um, this country has given the world, and we know, you know, intricately that that's you know what the American Negro has given to the world. So um, it's just it's just beautiful to see all these sort of interconnectedness, the the interweavings of all of these things, um, at which connects us all. Because I think so much of what the times we're living in now is, you know, there's this globalization for the rich and this disconnection and silos for the poor. But the more that we're able to see our humanity and our connection, the more we'll be able to defeat, you know, that one tenth of one percent um, um, to to actualize this global humanity. Um, uh,
0: on on that point. Uh... I also, I mean, agree with what everybody is saying that uh, what Michelle also started out by saying that the um, striving for the truth, I mean, does involve all this beauty and it's very uplifting. And I mean, that's another thing that differentiates what we try to do from uh, most of the left groups, because if you've spent any time there, there's extremely cynical and uh, pessimistic spaces. And uh, that goes for a lot of uh activism in the society but when you're going with Du Bois and you're going for the truth I mean you find that it's so uh uplifting and people are so uh attracted to it um but also bringing in some of the comments um uh,
3: before, yeah. before you read the comments sure sure well reading this chapter in our discussion has also given me an appreciation for how much how much of a master Du Bois is for seeing the level of beauty, which he does, because it doesn't, it's not that people don't necessarily want to see beauty or hope, but that they literally can. And it's something that you have to battle for, or you have to really struggle to see. And um, yeah, I, I, I almost think there's like a science the way Du Bois does it with seeing, taking, you know, what is at hand, what is before you, and then being able to you know, like see the beauty, see such broad beauty in it because you have a sense, like you have, you have clarity and, like, confidence that there is actually a method for to reaching that endpoint and reaching what is possible, like in a person or in a society or even in the world. And, um. Yeah, yeah. That's all I wanted to add.
0: Uh, on that point. Uh, Emily has a comment, our conversation right now and Michelle's reading of this part of chapter four made me think that Du Bois's description of democracy in the Soviet Union, a new civilization with the working person at the center, reminds me in some ways of King's three dimensions of a complete life. King's example of mastering the first dimension length was a shoe shiner who King said would let that rag out, uh, you know, and he could bring music out of it. And I said to myself, this fellow has a PhD in shoe shining. Out of this first dimension where King notes, all labor has dignity, people and a whole society can reach three complete dimensions of a complete life. Um, Going back on this uh, earlier discussion we were having about Du Bois in China, um, Jerome uh, Muhammad had written that uh, this discussion reminded him that there is a Uh, sister, Amina Exley, who is a member of the Nation of Islam and Chinese American, who has had to wrestle with much of her heritage and her cross pollination of multiple cultures. She's on Facebook, and it would be great to get her perspective and her ability to intersect her struggles with the Black struggle as one and the same. And uh, yeah, I think it would be pretty interesting. I I would ask Jerome to please share the discussions we've been having today about Du Bois and China with her. I think we would be very interested to know how she reacts. Um, and Emily had written, uh, similar to the piece Michelle was reading, Joe Lies' condolences to Shirley Graham Du Bois are also moving. He writes about Du Bois, his unquote, his unbending will and his spirit of uninterrupted revolution set an example for all the oppressed people to follow. Dr. Du Bois was a loyal friend of the Chinese people who loved him and held him in high esteem. He will forever live in the hearts of the Chinese people. Um, Yvonne writes, Du Bois points out that Trotsky saw the proposal to try to build socialism in a single country was impractical and uh, that they should wait for a world revolution to prepare the way. But, uh, but fortunately, Lenin and Stalin dared to try Du Bois says, quote, they knew the risk, but they took it even after the world attacked, end quote. But for the courage of the leadership of Lenin and Stalin, progressive forces in the world would not have benefited from this incredible human experiment. Uh, Sammy Chomsky writes, "I, I agree with Serafina. I love, too, that this flips this point about he makes about the trade unions flips the conservative argument of quote, unions just want more money without increased production end quote on its head. I should add, I mean, it, this flips a lot of what we see organized labor doing uh, here, which is very rarely challenging the status quo or the powers that be had, more uh, often acting as an appendage to one of the two political parties. Um, Kathy Jang writes, I agree with Doc, I'm greatly moved by Du Bois' description of the Soviet Union's strivings toward a sincere democracy in 1936, inviting mass participation in the state through not just voting, but especially discourse at local and national levels. Quote, village Soviets were allowed the utmost freedom of discussion. There was practically nothing they were not allowed and even encouraged to discuss and deal with. Criticism on local and national matters literally boundless and continuous, end quote. For us raised in Western political ideology, hearing about the one-party Soviet political system may make us think of the mass surveillance and thought control from George Orwell and Hannah Arendt's analyses of Stalinism as totalitarianism. But few of us have undertaken a serious sociological study of the complex multi tier systems of mass civic participation of Stalin's Soviet Union, like Du Bois did during his time to appreciate those strivings to create a civilization of industrial democracy on an unprecedented scale. There's much to learn from the Soviet Union's political processes and examine the rampant anti-communism during this current moment of American democracy's crisis of legitimacy and neo-McCarthyist lack of discourse. Uh, Sambarta Chatterjee writes, the progress of women's emancipation in Russia in terms of not just enfranchisement, but economic, <clears throat> excuse me, but economic, especially household freedom seems crucial. Something neglected in the Western feminist movement. The Indian historian Dharm Anand Kosambi puts, the, puts forth a similar argument that Russia's idea of emancipation put a strong focus on valuing motherhood reflected in universal six month maternity leaves an education and care of the child by the state, something still a far off dream for many in the West. The West's response to this was how Russia had, quote, nationalized its women.
3: (laughs) 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 I didn't hear that one. (laughs) 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 Uh, I,
0: I think on the point you were making about the how the African-American studies departments have, you know, become disasters. This uh, Helen Laurie adds, and women's oops, gender studies departments too.
1: Yeah, well, I guess we can expand it. The universities as a whole. I mean, because now they become appendages of the reactionary state. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is no freedom of discussion. As, As we see, freedom of dissent is being attacked in this country. Uh, And it's, the irony is that the left is not protesting it. Mm -hmm. Do do you think that the uh, university
7: has replaced the church uh, analogous to Russia? The university is like the church in Russia as uh, the university is to America?
1: I think it's something like that. I think, I think you know, a lot of what is called uh, African-American studies, a lot of, of what is called gender studies or queer studies is really an appeal to superstition rather than to science. Uh, and certainly there is no future to any of it. Uh, and what they, what they want students to become, uh, first of all, opportunist and careerist Uh, with no commitment to anything beyond themselves. Uh, It is it is a horrible uh, thing uh, to do to young people.
0: Yeah, I mean, er earlier, we were discussing about how for the left, it's Du Bois or the abyss. But I think we could say for the university and if we expand it for any serious intellectual work or scholarly work in the U.S., I, I sometimes feel similar. It's Du Bois or the abyss, yes, and we see the abyss, like you're saying, these these uh, uh, these different programs and these uh, postmodernism, identity politics, in extreme irrelevancy from the masses. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, where do where does scholarship go? You know. And except here, it's it's hard to uh, identify anywhere else.
1: And and, you know, I just said, and we cannot minimize the significance of the crisis this country is in, COVID or not COVID, this country will never be the same. And uh, I know it might sound a little bit uh, extreme to say it, but the more you look at the political situation, the more it looks like a civil war mm-hmm. and the state is treating dissent, trying to use uh, maybe the Proud Boys or the Boogaloo Boys or uh, the woman that follows QAnon Q- down in Georgia or another one that wants to bring a uh, AR-15 or a pistol into the, the uh, Congress. Well, okay. But what about the broad mass of people who are being shut down uh, in this process? And why would you shut down dissent unless you are waging a war against the people? So here we have Du Bois, here we have a left that literally has nothing, frankly. Uh, I think Johan, you might be the best testimony of this whole thing. I mean, what do they offer? What can they offer? Go to their websites, listen to what they say. Well, they can protest, they can express anger, but beyond that, there is no vision, there is no theory. And frankly, there is no practice outside of following whatever the quote, liberal part of the ruling class, directs them
2: to do to that point Tony, because i find it interesting that you know in in the calls that they make this this left or whatever um one in particular is defund the police but they don't say anything about necessarily defunding the military or like making a huge position about you know defunding the military and things like that so um it's it's very interesting you know who and what funds these movements are not for the people and and I, you know, through and by the people.
1: There's no question. There is no question.
0: Uh, yeah, to that point, uh, these supposed progressive national level progressives in the Democratic Party who spent the past year calling for defunding the police, now they're calling for the military to stay in Washington D.C. and protect them. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez was calling for defunding the police. Now she's like. I need the. I don't just need the police. I need the military, the national guard, capital police, all for my protection. Um, so yeah, yeah, absolutely see through the contradictions.
5: Yeah, and AOC was calling for um, basically for Trump supporters to be quote deprogrammed. She's calling for legis- oh, yeah. like programs to deprogram like what I mean, what she calls like white supremacists, but I feel like really just
0: Trump supporters.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's the national political situation. I mean, there's so it's so it is. I mean, it is basically like Doc was saying. I mean, but when you look at it, sometimes it seems like a like a, if it wasn't so dire, you would laugh. I mean,
1: so. well, I, I do laugh a lot. <laughs> right, right,
0: right. <laughs> sometimes I wonder if I should feel bad about it. But, you yeah. know, but that, that is the thing. I mean, you know, the U.S. lecturing the world about democracy, saying China is authoritarian. Meanwhile, your capital has 25,000 soldiers. <laughs> you know, talk about a banana. And what is the justification yeah. that they're afraid that the Congress people will kill each other or they're afraid that people will protest the impeachment hearings? Oh, impeachment of a former president also, mind you, yeah, not yeah. a current president. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, all of this is going on. Meanwhile... Uh, some news that I had seen this week in terms of dissent: um, the Congress passed this new law. It had a nice name, something similar <laughs> to like Voting Rights Act or something <laughs> along those lines. But really, what it really what it does is puts takes away uh, the power of states to regulate their elections, puts it entirely in the hands of Congress. They have the power to take away any kinds of authorization or verification, and when it comes to voting. Essentially, it means the Congress, which is controlled by the Democratic Party, can control all elections around the country and, you know, do whatever they like with them, tamper with it, however they like. The other thing was uh, in Florida, there's some conservative blogger in 2016. He made some memes, which you put on Facebook and stuff. Yeah. And some of the memes said, like, you can call this number and vote there or you can tweet this hashtag and that will be counted as a vote. Now he's being arrested. He, yeah, arrested, he was locked uh, up. Yeah, they locked him up. Died yeah. in for uh, yeah. you know, com- committing a felony and all this stuff. You know, this is the Biden Justice Department in action. Um, and, and then, of course, it. yeah.
1: Yeah, my man with the horns—he's oh, locked yeah. up too.
0: Yeah, that guy. Well, anyway, I, I was always kind of suspicious of that guy. He seemed a little overdramatic to me, you know.
1: Well, he's thrown off. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, because he, it was—it it was in the he's news. He's a rebel that, without a cause, but I mean, he, he found he, something. Go ahead.
0: No, he said he would testify against Trump at the impeachment. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, he's trying to stay out of jail. I don't. He was—he is
0: an active voice actor by profession. So yeah,
1: I, I yeah, know. yeah. And it's it, a it very surreal, surrealistic moment, uh, to put it mildly. But, uh, but how else would it be? <laughs> right. How else would it be? Uh, you've cut, you shut the people off. They don't have a voice. I mean, that's the difference. What Du Bois describes about Soviet democracy from the bottom. And look at this people are so frustrated that they're willing to do anything. You're going to hear me whether you like it or not. And I mean, you know, for a Cat to come with a, a mock-up of a lynching thing, <laughs> you know, we go, I mean, now everybody knows the guy couldn't, they couldn't lynch anybody with that. I mean, it was a toy, a mock-up of a, of a hanging man's news. Oh, now, now he's going to go to jail for treason, and and he might get hung for even having that. I mean, look, come on, we have to suspend intelligent critical thought to believe the narrative that the ruling class is trying to impose. And once you dig what that narrative is for, and you understand, anybody that understands the question of can the ruling class rule? Can it rule? And obviously what they're saying is yes, we can rule, but all democracy has to be suspended. This will become a police state uh, where, you know, all of the cultural freedoms such as gay marriage, uh, Black Lives Matter, if you make money, and so on and so forth can be the uh, agenda of the day. But the working class has to be uh, suppressed.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of this, you know, comes back to how so many people are looking in the wrong places for answers or asking the wrong questions or you know, propagating the wrong slogans. Um, and I, I really like the point you brought up, Jamila, about um, defund the police, but you know, like people are saying defund the police, but yeah, what about war? And then you think of the way that King talked about war, where he says, you know, he has his speech beyond Vietnam, or he's talking about beyond Vietnam, you know, like, what does a world beyond war look like? What would a world, what could a world without um, the Vietnam War look like, or in opposition to, it? you know, what would that be? And just this focus on possibility and how how people completely lack that. But yeah, what you said, Doc, also made me think about how um, people are so, um, so many masses of people, people who want to call themselves left or progressive, they're so bad at understanding how manipulated they are by the ruling elite. And they're really bad at making a rejection of the elite culture or the ruling class of the society. because subconsciously, they still aspire toward it or they still identify it. And I think it does come back to this question of beauty, like even where they see beauty or where they see authority, like they'll be so proud of Beyonce for doing a dance, you know, evocative of the Black Panther Party, or they're so torn up about the death of Kobe Bryant. But, you know, they'll probably just walk by a homeless black man like on the street in Philadelphia. You know, you don't see the beauty of the common people, but rather, you know, there's this fetish of celebrity or of luxury. Um, Yeah, and the last thing I wanted to say is um, I think Serafina had brought up how, or no, Samir, you had brought up how Dubois calls out the beauty of the Moscow subway and how singular it is. And he also talks about how it was the most motivated worker who was ready to give for the uplift of the society, who constructed, who made possible something as beautiful, um, as as beautiful and sophisticated as the, that subway system. And he also talks about how when you walk across um, the cities and the towns of the Soviet Union, the building that will stand out the most to you is the schoolhouse. Yeah. Um, that's where the most attention is given. And, you um, I I think it's just so telling, you know, where, even where Russia was seeing beauty or where Russia wanted to give her resources. um, Yeah.
0: Uh, um, Alice Klein writes, latest quote from AOC, you're either quote, you're either with the people or you're with that that mob, end quote. I wonder who she thinks
1: the people are right (laughs) (laughs) the people always appear as a mob to the ruling class (laughs) uh
0: yeah go ahead
5: well just quick quickly like what michelle was saying it just made me think about how yeah like a lot of i feel like especially like young like leftists or people who might think of themselves as like socialists, democratic socialists, even communists, whatever. It's like, because one they aspire towards like the existing celebrities, it, it's like, it becomes the mindset where in order, like to us victory means we generate our own celebrities. And so the result is AOC who is not really like any sort of principled political figure, but is more her, she functions much more effectively as a celebrity you know, with like all these features and like, you know, Vogue magazine, whatever. Um, and yeah, I think it's very counter to everything that, yeah, that Du Bois was like describing um, and that, yeah, our whole discussion of of like what is actually beautiful and like like what, um, yeah, what is actually needed in our time. Oh,
0: that's a good point, actually. I mean that that's again that's part of the problem i mean the the left is so dependent on the the ideas of the ruling class that you're right. I mean they think that if that's success, just getting celebrity out there, this celebrity or or certain other people you know starting podcasts and different things like that you know that's I mean that's what they view as as success or be, being in the New York Times or oh, you know <laughs> not ideas, not engaging with the ideas I mean I, one thing I'll never forget of uh Okazu, of course, has when she first came like in the national scene, like one of the first things she said, somebody asked her, like, oh, you call yourself a socialist, but like, what do you mean by like somebody was questioning her commitment to it? And she was like, Oh, well, I'm from a Spanish-speaking working class family. We didn't have time to read about all this. Yeah, I was right. like, really? <laughs> There's, there's nothing written about socialism in the Spanish language. Yeah, right, right. There's no Cuban yeah. revolution. <laughs> the revolution, none of that.
1: But just start with the independence movement for Puerto Rico.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I
1: mean, there's exactly. a lot of people that, wrote, you know, the Puerto Rican side that invaded, you know, you got a lot of people you could have read. <laughs> right,
0: right, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, the whole idea of studying is like the most alien thing, the last thing that they would think of um but uh, another comment from Nuri she writes I think the idea of the university replacing the church in terms of dictating thought is really apt and also what Du Bois was getting at in his essay Galileo Galilei Mm -hmm. another reason why Du Bois is so prophetic and necessary for these times to find a way out uh Jake Harris writes This is really a wonderful free school. I feel it is very clarifying as to what revolution must achieve, what upliftment means. Russia and Du Bois in describing Russia is very enlightening. That's pretty much it for the comments. So we're at one twenty it's
1: time to
0: eat lunch all right we can wrap up Oh, a few people were asking or one person but i'll just repeat uh that uh in terms of viewing this the whole thing from the beginning for those who join later uh the video of this will be and the audio of course will be available on the facebook page of the free school where we're live streaming now but the audio in a few hours will also put up on spotify so um In both of those ways you can uh, watch or listen to it from the beginning. So please do so if you missed some of it and please uh, share with people who would be interested. And also some people were asking about accessing the book or the PDF. If you look in the description of the live stream, there's a link. I also posted it again in the comments to the uh, website where you can download the full PDF for uh, Russia and America. And uh, so, thanks everybody for joining us today. Everyone who joined the live stream. Thanks for viewers. We're glad that we could avoid technical problems today. And uh, next week, hopefully, we'll continue with uh, finishing up uh, chapter four. Bye. Bye
1: bye. Bye. Thank you guys.